All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Mindful Hunter podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jay Nickel. Okay, so we have a very special guest on the podcast this evening. Jordan from BC Backcountry is uh, on for his second time. Uh, he came on and talked some elk hunting strategies uh, early September. And at that point, we agreed because I was getting equal questions from his mule deer escapades as I was from his elk hunts that we would limit that conversation to elk and really dive into mule deer on this second conversation. Jordan is an absolute killer. And on top of that, I find him a really self-aware dude. So not only does he do a lot of things that bring about success, he's aware of what those things are and he can hold a conversation about them, which I think makes him a really great individual to learn from. And he's a pretty humble guy too. He doesn't, I think he could probably take more credit than he, than he takes. Um, but I'm super excited for this for this conversation. I know I'm going to get to learn a lot, and I hope I hope you guys really enjoy this as well. Please take a moment to engage with the podcast, like, share, comment, subscribe. All of that helps me grow the channel, and I really appreciate it. And as always, if you want to support the podcast directly, mindfulhunter.com/shop. Go buy a shirt. Go buy a hat. It helps me grow the channel. Um, other than that, if you need anything from me, hit me up on Instagram, mindful underscore hunter, uh, or shoot me an email, jay at mindfulhunter.com. And here's Jordan, and you can find him on Instagram at, at BC Backcountry, all one word. All right, here's the interview. The wicked season was super fun. Um, I think we must have talked then probably post bow season then. Um, pre-rifle, we've had a slotted it in probably right between those two trips. For I think that's exactly when it was. Yeah. 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 So both season was fun, had lots of chances. Uh, it was lots of action. Um, but you know, nothing, nothing hit the dirt, um, went back and rifle and it was just kind of really good run activity. There's lots of action. Um, we had lots of locations where we'd already found elk from bow and we we're back in the same area. So we already had like pockets of, of, of elk that we knew about. Yep. And so we were already kind of hitting the ground running when we got out there. So it was, I can't even remember when our first bull went down, but it, it might've been day two or three, like it was quick, right? It was kind of like hit this spot in the morning. Okay. Nothing happening. Hit that spot in the afternoon. Oh, got a bull going, you know, oh, it's just five point and then hit the next spot the next morning. I think we were on our, our first six point and it was a, it was a, our first bull was kind of the, the best bull of the trip, um, which was cool. Um, had a couple years of age, uh, just a squeaker six on the one side, but came out right in a cut, which never happens for us. So, um, <laughs> it was sweet to get that done. Right. Half the time it's, it's 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 yards, right. And you're in some thick stuff. So, so that was a cool one, pulled it right out of the cut and, and, um, you know, had time to look them over. And it was one of those things where, you know, elk come in and you're just looking at that point right away. And you're like, he's got a split and you're just trying to gauge how big it is. Right. So. Um, he just played in our cards really nicely, which was sweet because there was no pressure to make a call, snap decision. It was like, you know, watching one side and we're like, yeah, that's almost. And then watching the other side swing around a couple of times and that's like, okay, yeah, that's, you know, I got a full inch on the, on the other side. Right. So we can kind of tell that one was, was perfectly legal and whack that one up close. And then, um, so one quick question I, I got for you is, and we never actually touched on this. How do you guys decide shooter? Cause you kind of got a, like a gang um, of guys up there with you. Yeah. We've got a, we've got a, a really big size group now. Right. And it's kind of just naturally grown over the years as, as things go. Right. Um, and not, not many of us, if 
only one of us has, two of us have kids right now. So uh, three of us have kids. Thanks. So anyways, they're pretty good at getting time off even with the families, yeah. but um, you know, they're all kind of that stage where they can get away for, for a week or so from the, the wife and family and, and make it happen. So the group's big um, in the past, man, we've always just done, um, you know, there's a designated shooter, but uh, you sacrifice nothing to give that person a shot. So you're trying to say, okay, it's this person's go this year hasn't, hasn't tagged a bull yet. So whenever he's with somebody that's calling, you know, all efforts to make that guy the shooter, right? But the bottom line is if there's a follow-up shot required, whoever's available takes it, right? And if the bull comes out in the wrong place and the caller gets a shot, the caller takes it, right? So it's kind of like you're pushing for the shooter that's designated and then whoever gets a shot takes it when it's all said and done. So nobody gets you know upset that it was my turn or nothing like that. It's just a matter of, of making sure the bull hits the dirt and, and moving on, right? But but generally just took turns, you know, the first bull goes down, there's no preference who's shooting. Okay. Um, and then you're trying to get, trying to get the next guy and you're trying to get the next guy and trying to get the next guy. And I'm just kind of, you know, me and Ryan are doing a lot of the calling. So we kind of split up and there's always a guy or two with, with each of us. Right. And right. then, you know, it all comes together and somebody whacks a bull and you're like, okay, well, you know, I've whacked so many, you've whacked so many that's trying to get buddy his first bull. Right. So okay. it's kind of cool. Everyone's, everyone's tagged except for, for our newest uh, guy, Matt, who just joined the group last couple of years. So, um, everyone's whacked a bull now, which is really cool. Everyone's got one of the belts. So yeah, now he'll likely be up kind of beginning of next yeah. season. That's how you guys approach it. Yeah. Totally right. So, so that's cool, man. On a bull, right. So yeah. just nice. And it's fun for the caller, right. Get to see the action and, and call the play and make it happen. Right. So, yeah. um, so it goes, but yeah, no, I didn't pull the trigger at all this year. Neither did Ryan. Um, everywhere else was on the bulls basically. So it's a good way to go. Right. I mean, good on you guys for that, man. Cause you're kind of pulling a lot <laughs> of the weight too, like, as far as the preseason work goes and the calling and all that kind of stuff, like there's, and I know that it's not just about that for you guys, but, and maybe that's why you guys have the success you do because you're not so concerned with it being personal success. That's an interesting angle because I don't know a lot of people who would be like that selfless and yeah, that's, that's pretty badass. That's all. I think that's, cool. um, you know what, like between me and Ryan, like Ryan's always been like way less, or way more selfless than me. Like he's like, I don't ever need to pull the trigger. It's all good. Like I just wanted, I just wanted to go down. He's like, I love calling, and he was always the best caller at the beginning. Yep. So he he was hands down the guy that was going to make it happen most trips until kind of I built my skills and the other people kind of started getting on the, on the game as well. But um, he's been super good that way. I'm like, you know, a bit selfish at times. Yeah. I like to be behind the trigger. I want to make. I like love calling. I also want to kill once in a while too. Right. Of course. So, course it's nice to be a part of the guy behind the, the trigger as well but i have been really lucky and like just the way things work out i've been whacking bulls year after year lately so i think i've gone like three out of four years putting the six point down and I've that's nice like man i think too six, with elk there now, is a so. difference about being the caller like you it's not like anything else like even when you make a spot you know let's say mule deer hunting like you don't feel the same level of responsibility but when you call in that bull it is a bit of a notch on your belt like so there is a bit of like a shared accomplishment and conquest i think there that's pretty intriguing 100 man that's it's it's yeah it's it's I, I agree. You, you, once you're calling and you work the bull and you kind of bend, bend your will or impose your will on them, it's kind of like, man, that's the whole thing of, it's like pulling the animal all the way in and then deciding not to pull the trigger, right? You've done all the work and, yep. and in the elk situation, it's just, yeah, you're just not the guy on the trigger, right? So yep. um, a total different level, level of satisfaction on that side of it for sure. Okay. So we're two days deep. We've got the first bull on the ground. Yeah. Easy pack out, you know, um, boys are in and out and we've got this whole 
I'll quarter it up, butcher it up, and then we're back to the truck. Within a what are you doing hours. for meat care? Like, do you run it out to a locker or or something? Or are you hanging Yeah, we'll in? drive into the, the closest town, find a okay. freezer somewhere. Um, so we keep our camp kind of meat-free, which is, you know, nice for grizzly bears and all yep, that. We yep. about it. And we've done, like, some way more remote, remote hunts where you're dealing with um, losing meat. Yeah. It's not a fun way to be sitting in camp constantly trying to deal with meat going bad or flies getting yeah. on it or worried about it. It's like... Make the trip, get it out of your hair, get it in the freezer somewhere, get it looked after, and then you know the meat's gonna be premium when you're done and, and you know it's stress free for the rest of the trip. So you're not trying to pack up early and get home before it spoils or something like that, right? Yeah, I'm I'm in the middle of planning a, a seven to ten day caribou hunt, fly in at a dece for my old man, my brother, and myself. And this is one of the things right. I'm thinking is that, you know, we take a boo on day two, you, there's still two yeah. other guys who are trying to tag out, and it's like, you know, now I got eight days left of a hunt, and I'm actually thinking if things timed perfectly, because I know I need two flights out anyways, just might have that one flight come in the middle, grab two animals, get them out of there, and then we could do the three dudes and the last animal on the last day type of deal. But it's really been playing over in my mind because I'm like, I'm pretty good for like three to four days. I can keep, you know, meat in most circumstances, especially that like late September, I think it'll, especially as far north as we'll be, but you start getting past three, four, five days. And unless you're in like legitimately cool, weather it like shit starts getting a little bit sketchy 100 100 percent. no it's it's get, those types of hunts right it gets complicated right the yeah. decision making process it's like all of a sudden can you even shoot like a a big game animal on day one yeah it's like well you're kind of already you know taking your back end of your trip and pulling it forward yeah right? so start saying shit wait we're not ready yet huh totally totally <laughs> yeah okay no, for sure so yeah we do the freezer so we get that we get that all processed and dealt with and then we um i can't remember the second bull I should be able was, to remember. I followed you know along. You know what it was? I got a, a second. Sorry, go ahead. I should remember. I followed along closely enough when you guys were in there. You know, what? we were pushing a ton of bulls for a few days and not getting counts, um, getting five points, and working like some hot action, but just you know, never being able to close the deal and get up up and close and personal. And our one buddy went out for a morning putt and literally got a bull going from the truck and. Walked away from it because he couldn't tell how the hell he's going to get in there. You know, what the route was to take. Went, checked out another area, came back, one call, the bull lit up again. And so at this point, he's got all eyes on him. So we're all spread on different areas. We had a, a blowout morning. There was nothing happening. So we we were on our way hiking out and, you know, we had cell coverage at the moment. So got a message from him saying, got a bull going. We're up at such and such a point. So we basically just sprinted out and like, hey, we're on our route, on our way. Right? We're going to be an hour and a half. Best case scenario, just like try to keep pounds in the bull, whatever, and we'll make a plan going as a group. Meanwhile, Ryan's up on another ridge glassing across this guy. And he's like, yeah, you got elk above you as well. And he's getting calls below him and there's elk above him. Now we're like an hour into the elk above him or we're going after the elk below. And so the the ones above look like a big bodied animal with a, with a, um, a herd of cows. So we get there, there's four of us now. So we like just sprint into these other elk, close the gap in like 30, 40 minutes. But the bull had just stepped into the timber like 10 minutes before he got there. Ugh. So we called, we set up, we did everything, and they weren't coming back out. And it's late morning at that point, right? And, and he got had his cows already. So I assume that was a, a herd bull there that just kind of tucked up in the timber. So at that point, we're like, it's super steep. It's super thick where they are. Um, and we'd already pushed those out before from above. And so we knew the kind of little hole that they're in. And it wasn't a place that was going to go running in after them. So we bailed back out, went, went back to these other elk got them going 
quickly realized there was two bowls and then we started trying to figure out, pick a path from here. So um, long story short, the terrain was actually really shitty, uh, but we managed to get in there close enough where we had some room to maneuver some open country to move through because everything was just blow down, pick up sticks to get in there. And we could not find much routes that were, that were walkable. So got in there where the wind was kind of not working in our favor, but we had enough of a buffer that they weren't going to smell us. And so we just kind of worked it from there, got some calls, kind of, you know, spent our time to kind of try to pinpoint where it was. And then we just used some open meadows and just boogied. So we did this massive lap around where the bowl was, came in downwind. Um, and at that point, we, we kind of had a bit of control of the wind. It was kind of working with us finally. Um, and then we're on our way to this bowl. It's thrashing. We're, we're guns up multiple times waiting for it to come out. And then finally I grabbed my body and I just, I kind of pushed him like right there, pushed him against the tree. And like, he's turning around to look at me. So I'm about to rip a bugle and like expect this bull to pop out, you know, 40 yards away. He looks at me and then his eyes just friggin' bugged out. I look and then I look over my shoulder what the hell he's looking at. And there's just a six by six broadside, <laughs> 60 yards, completely wrong place for this bull to step out from. I had no fucking idea what was happening, right? I was like, what the shit? And so I just like binoculared up. And it does like, and you can tell he's like full, like pose broadside, just staring at you. Like he just caught us with our pants down. Yeah, yeah. He also knows his pants are down Yeah, and we're all just kind of like, holy shit. And so I just like flew binoculars up as quick as possible. Had my bugle tucked under my arm. And it's basically, he just turned to, to, to run. And as he turned, it was just like, you can obviously see the whole, his whole spread, right? And yeah. he's looking at me, you can obviously see all his brows, his thirds, his fourths. And you're just like looking for that last split. So as soon as he turned, I don't even know if I had my binoculars up, to be honest, now that I think about it. I think I was bringing my binoculars up. He turned. I could just see this obvious split that was like four or five inches long. I was like, six-point shoot. And he just smacked him right there, dropped them, And we're just like, holy shit, right? So <laughs> we're trying to figure out what the hell's going on. And we walk up this bull. is there's a doorknob. And we're like, man, I don't even know what just happened. What's, what's going on? And then sure enough, the bull we were after lights back up again. And we're like, holy shit. So we ended up working that bull as well. Ryan came came and hiked in at this point. He worked that bull. I worked the bull. They got close. They got a look at him, saw like the split, but couldn't make a, couldn't make sure that it was like easily over an inch. And so he got away, but they came out and packed that bull with us. So again, full crew of like six guys packing a bull. That's great, man. Yeah. Like, you know, three or four stops and the thing was all the way out in like two hours, three hours and we're back to the truck. So it was just like a, you know, easy midday pack out. Everything was like super, super enjoyable. Right. So it was, so I was really lucky. And then, get that back to the butcher as well. I can't remember if we took a day off at that point. Um, and then I think we just basically went straight after that same bull. Okay. So we started chasing some of those other herds and then maybe gave him a one day off. And then we went back after that same bull and Ryan just, just worked the shit out of him, pulled him way out of his, out of his comfort zone and had shooters way in front of him, like 200 yards in front of him. They got a good clean look and was able to, to make the count and put it down. Right. So it was a pretty cool trip, three bulls in like six days. And then we just said, you know what, we've, we've, we've had our way with these elk and there's, there's multiple bulls to chase right now, but you know, we've all got half an elk at this point. Yeah. Um, there's no need to really whack another one. Right. And, and me and Ryan both on the trigger, but just a part of every kind of play that was, was happening. Right. So we all felt pretty satisfied with that. And so really cool way to start the year off for sure, man. It was, it was. That's a pretty responsible know, decision too, man. Good on you for that. Cause I mean, it's not always the easiest thing to walk away from an opportunity rich environment, even though it might be the right thing to do. Yeah, and honestly, like two bulls were quite young. Like they had they had the 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 six point criteria, but you know, it was just like we were looking at like three and a half year old bulls. Right. Right. Like, you know, we've taken three bulls. There's definitely like bigger bulls that we chased this year. 
I was like, it was almost like you've always wanted to make that. We've always wanted this, the two bowls because our group was getting bigger. Yep. And then we got two bowls, right? And then kind of like, you know, one year we're going to get three. It's just going to happen. And then all of a sudden it was just like a gift. It was like one after another. And yeah. you're like, it was almost like that kind of thing that like kind of looked into it finally. Like we did it. Like, you know, finally cards went our way. We got three bowls. And then you realize we don't have to kill three bowls, right? Right. <laughs> That may have been the goal and the target. You may have been like wanting to be able to prove that you can do it and make it happen and, and be on that much action. But you get three bowls down. We had plenty of meat. And we're just like, you know what? That was that was really cool. But um, I think that was like a game changer for all of us. We came back from that hunt and it was just like, none of us like wanted to go and look for a squeaker sticks. We're all like, you know what? We've done it. Like, let's let's set our sights higher. So yep. we're probably going to transition and, and kind of change the areas that we're hunting and, and the ways that we're hunting. We're probably going to, go back into chasing kind of lower population areas with, with bigger bulls and, and be a little more selective looking for something with a couple more years of age. Right. And not that you can't do it where we are. It's just, they're much harder to get uh, right. with the higher age class there. Right. Like so many of the bulls are just, just coming of age, just getting to breeding age. And you're, you know, you're popping them the first time they get a, a split that's over an inch. And it's like, you know, they're, they're not old and they're not big bulls for the majority of the time. And, and, you know, we've had a lot of fun shooting like good bulls in the past. So, we kind of want to get back to that and, and try to get on some some bigger animals, right? Different pursuit, different challenge for sure. Hundred percent, man. Makes makes total sense. I'm I'm it's up in the air whether I'm gonna get out for bear this year, but I've already made a decision. Like that's where I'm at with bear hunting. Like last year I doubled yeah. up. Yeah. And I'm not like, like the one was a pretty nice guy. You know what I mean? Like he was, he was big and fat and old. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm glad I took him out. He was ready to go, but the other one was pretty small and I used my rifle on both of them. And I'm like, I'm not, what am I doing? Like, I'm not even into <laughs> shooting bears with rifles. Like, it's kind of yeah. like, it feels like yeah. cheating. Do you know what I mean? It's like, what was that? But I kind of had this double thing in my head and it was like, yeah, so it was fun and everything, but you, you just knew immediately afterwards. I'm like, nah, it's not that thing that I'm looking for it's not there right now. Like I don't have that feeling that I normally get when I like go up against like a worthy foe, you know what I mean? And it's so, so it's like already in my head that like, if I get out this year, it's like big old seven footer or fuck it. I'll go home empty. Yeah. Yeah, man. I hear you on that one. Like I I've, I've done so much bear hunting and so few bears killed, but it's always been bow. And I think yeah. I killed one bear with my rifle and that was a bear I got last year. Um, and it was just to get back into bear hunting, right? Sure. I didn't have time to shoot the bow in the spring. And I yep. really wanted yep. to get out. I was like, I haven't done it for so long. And it was really fun. But yeah, quickly, it's like, okay, I've got a, a bear again. I got a bit of the bug, but it's going to be bow again, right? I, mean, I think I may fun. take some newbies out this year. A couple of dudes, sure. an older yeah. guy and his kid hit me up at the gym. And I know there's a couple people who've never gone out. And I'm thinking, that's something I could get behind. Like, I think a rifle bear is like a great first animal. They're all over the place. We can do some fun day hunts, you know, like, totally. and then I could still get out. And I do like bear meat. So if I'm like, I'm taking a guy out, like I'll take a quarter home for myself. Sure. Um, yeah. But I think totally. that'll be, that'll be a good way to get out and, and still put some animals down. But as far as my own pursuits, yeah, I'm, I'm at the same place. No, I actually, those are some of my favorite hunts, right? It's, if you take something new or something that's just trying to fill a tag or the first time, it's like you kind of just get excited again yeah. at the spotting of a game, which is, just makes it fun because, you know, when you kind of start to be selective, you know, you see an animal, you're not all hump or pipe or, or pumped up at the time, right? Because you're right away, you're kind of saying, okay, how old is it? How big is it? This and that. It's like, we got a new hunter. It's like, okay, you know, this is probably a shooter. Let's see if we can get positioned, see if we can make it happen. And it's, and it's so much fun just getting somebody else behind the gun getting on an animal, right? So Well, and that's funny. I'll, I'll tell the mule deer story when we get over to mule deer, but I had a very similar, that's kind of what happened with me and Spence when we got on, on our mule deer. So what have I, what, what have I done for, um, 
hunting since I saw you. I guess I did I did my mule deer hunt and then I did an archery whitetail hunt, but I didn't do anything late September because my sheep hunt, which I went on just before talking to you guys, was kind of like we went like that mid-August. So I stayed home for for September. Um so yeah. that was that was all yeah. I got in my fall. And we got a nice um not a nice, it was a very young, it was a smaller mule deer. And then I got a doe with my bow in, uh, do you know Kettle River? Yeah. Yeah. He passed away. Hey, Melvin. Oh, sorry. Kettle. Who? Do you know? Oh, Kettle River Outfitters. They're by Kettle River outside of like, uh, outside. He's been there for like. I thought you were saying the river and I was like, yeah, of course, but okay. The, the outfitter, the head outfitter. Yeah, yeah. There. Kettle River Outfitters. He passed away this year. So that was super weird because yeah. I like, I, I hooked up this hunt and then I heard from my buddy. He was like, yeah, he passed away. And I was like, what? And then his wife never really told me or anything. So I like, okay, well, I guess I'm going hunting. And she decided to just like finish up the last two weeks. A couple of the guides stuck around and everything. But he's a bit of a fixture in that like, like I think he's owned that outfit for like 30 years or something. Like uh, crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah how long he's been, he's been down there and, and yeah. Oh, Anyways, shit. not, not like, yeah, kind of, kind of off on a tangent, but yeah, poor guy, yeah. man. Yeah. He was out moving stands and just had a jammer. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's like six o'clock oh, and nobody had seen him and they went out and they followed the sled tracks and fucking there he was, man. I mean, I guess if you're going to go. I was going to say, man, uh, uh, yeah. One of the things you didn't go, do, go doing, doing what you love. You know what I mean? Like Brandy. if I'm out in the yeah. woods and I just, fucking pass out and that's just all she wrote like it could be worse man 100 percent, yeah <laughs> no doubt cool. so so yeah what, what so you got your mule deer in october then yeah so uh, well, yeah so let's transition to mule deer you kind of got me out yeah. to yeah. Uh, um and then we'll get into your because i think yours is going to be a little bit more poignant for um for like actual tactics because i we didn't fuck i probably should have had it i was going to call you before but anyways so we wanted to go to a new area. A buddy told me a tip. It was basically like that whole, and I don't mind saying it was this specific, but kind of that area back behind Caramillos, kind of like Caramillos to the border. And there's a bunch of different like peaks and draws back there. Yes, and yes, it's yes. not a secret that there's like decent mule deer populations back there. Yeah. So we were back in there, went way back in, hiked in 26 kilometers from the truck, um, went in for six days. And just got brutalized by weather, like just yeah. blizzard, nonstop, six days, multiple feet of snow. Like it was crazy. Um, and basically saw nothing. And we were starting to see some tracks and it was kind of interesting because when you go on this big walk back there, you go through like very different little ecosystems. Like you'll be going through like a grassland and you'll see like no sign. And then you like hit yeah. the timber and then you'll start seeing all the tracks crossing the trail that you're, you're walking on. And then you come back out on another opening and it kind of opens up again. And so the one thing we did notice is like, they were definitely concentrated to the timber, but there's also like this yeah. big, crazy burn back in there. Anyways, we like we hunted hard, man, and we were doing a combination of like spot and stock and still hunting the timber. And I think yeah, that the yeah. still hunting the timber 
I felt more like I was blacktail hunting than mule deer hunting, to be honest with you, which is probably, you know, pretty similar to, to what you're going to describe when, cause that's very much oh, your yeah. style as opposed to like traditional Western mule deer hunting. Um, and that's where we were getting the better action. Like, I know I spooked a couple out of beds, like on more than one occasion, like you'd get there and you're like, fuck, yep. like these guys just <laughs> heard me like 10 minutes ago. Like I can see yeah. pellets on the ground. Fresh tracks walking yeah, out, right? 100%. Yeah. And it's like still seeing bare grass and like melted beds. And like, you could see how they're so crafty too, because they'll, they'll loop around from their own tracks to make a bed. So it's like, while I'm follow, like I, I busted myself by following your tracks. Yeah, because yeah, you, yeah, man, it's weird you did it. You almost yeah, man, bedded sure. like down below where your own tracks were so that you would hear me coming. And that, that happened on more than one occasion. We, I never saw a single buck when we were all the way back in. And then Spencer one time got on a doe, um, but obviously can't shoot a doe. And then yeah, man. And it, it was crazy. Blizzarded. We, we finally made it to the last day. Still hadn't seen anything. So we go to walk out and we're like, we're just going to smash this 26 K in like yeah. one day. Fuck it. And so we get 16 K done and we get to this like little place. We decide to have a bite to eat. And then we're coming down this thing and up on this big face, there's like a huge herd of sheep, which is like pretty cool to see. You know what yeah. I mean? And like, they're not giant sheep back in there, but, oh, we did blow out another sheep one time that was like a, like a big three fat three quarter curl. Like yeah. anyway, so we look up the hill, we see all these sheep. We're like, oh man, that's really wild. And that, that's the thing on the way out, the weather broke. And by the yeah. time we got yeah. back to this like halfway point to the truck, it's like blue skies, blue sea, yeah. snow's yeah. gone. And it was like, everybody had just woke up and like wherever they'd been hiding for the last week, everybody's coming out Go to time. play. Right. Yeah. And so sure. we're walking down this grassy slope and way down like a kilometer, kilometer and a half easy. We see like this little movement and we're like, oh, this is really weird. So we break out the spotter and you're like, at first glance, it just looks like does, but this is like, October, I want to say it's right before the four point season kicks in, which I think is October 31st. So maybe we're like last week of October, we're still any yeah. buck. And we do that yeah, very intentionally. Yeah. You know what I mean? Cause it's like, yeah. if we're going back yeah. in, I don't want to not be able to shoot like a big old three point. Totally. So I'm looking at Spence and I'm like, they look like all those, but it's like, dude, it's the last week of October. I'm telling you there's not just going to be eight does just hanging out by themselves. Like it's just not going to happen. And so we decided to walk down a little bit more. We thought we blew them out. And then when we got about eight, 900 yards away, I lift my binos again. And you know, what was funny. I couldn't even see the antlers. It was all body language. Yeah. Like I just, yeah. I looked in the binos and I'm like, that's a buck. Like yeah. just so he was just up and he was like, he was looking, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm yep. like, oh, that's a buck for sure. So I'm like, okay, let's make a play. And there's these giant boulders on this big grassy slope. And there's one about 200 yards in front of us. And now it looks like the deer are coming back up the slope. And we're probably like 800 yards away. Yeah. So we like kind of crouch down, beeline it to this big boulder. And I mean big, like the size of like a fucking Dodge Maxi van, like giant. 
and get behind it, creep out in the corner. And I like, I line up and the deer at like 450 right now. And they're just like walking right at us. Like, right at you. like cool. on a rope, man. Nice. Yeah. And yeah. so I finally spot the actual buck and it's like, it's a pretty small two by two. What shocked me though was the body size. Like they grow them yeah, big back in yeah. there, man. I was like, holy shit. Like, and maybe that's why his antlers looked even smaller to me because his body yeah, totally. was just yeah, yeah. so big. But just, it's always surprising, man, like how a, a young buck will outgrow an old doe so quickly. Right? It's like, wild. A, a year and a half, two year and a half year old um, buck is bigger than a four or five year old doe. hundred right? percent. They're, they're just bigger. They're yep. Just bigger. Yep. Crazy. And immediately when I look at it, my heart kind of sinks. I'm like, I, I can't shoot this deer. Like I'm just, it's just not something that I feel right about. But I look at Spencer and I'm like, do you want to shoot this thing? And he's doing backflips. Okay. Like, yes, yeah. let me. And I'm like, great. No problem. Yeah. I'm it's great. I, I'll take home some meat. And so I set my rifle up, dial, dial it in. And we're kind of playing a bit of a waiting game because it's like, I'm not going to take a 450 shot if I don't have to. Like yeah, sub three totally. to me is like kind of gimme territory. Three, four, five. Now you're like you're definitely inviting opportunity for error. And if we don't have to push it, so they just keep walking and walking and walking and I'm not really paying attention. And all of a sudden they're at like 220. And I'm like, okay, now I don't want to, now we're like maybe getting too close. Cause it's like, they're going to, you know, we, they could see us move or, or, or hear or something. Yeah. 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 So I'm like, okay, let's get this done. Dial it in. Boom. He smokes the buck, you know, one shot, beautiful walk over, no problem. And so, nice. And so that was that. So, and, and then we like skinned him, got to the truck at like, and the thing that sucks about driving home from Caramillos is there's like nothing on the way home. Like everything Those was cows. closed and what the fuck is that? Uh, starts with a P. Oh my God. Yeah. Princeton. Um, no, yeah, no, Princeton, no yeah, fast yeah. food. No, nothing. Yeah. I'm eating like Pringles and some other horse shit from Chevron at like midnight. Like my, and <laughs> you know what, it, you know what it's like when you're so overtired and so hiked out, like, your body's almost like revolting. Like I had a stomach ache yeah. and I'm like, a, like the shivers. And it was like, all I wanted was like a hot burger and like a Coke. <laughs> and it was just like nothing. It was brutal, man. Anyways. Yeah. And, and, and that, that was the hunt. So, I mean, at least we, you know, we got an animal. Spencer was, was really excited. It was his first, he's got a black tail with a bow, but that was his first, um, his first mule deer. So, and we, when we took something cool. home, so. Yeah. Always good, man. Nice to round out a trip with with a kill if you can, for sure. Especially if he's if he's first first meal there for him, right? That's wicked. And That's funny though with that that whole story about um, nothing open. We our second one of our, our our third bull that we ever got, um, and we hadn't killed a bull in like two years. We did a backpack hunt and um, you know got on bulls with the bow, and then it switched to rifle season, and we switched the rifle. We ended up killing the same bull we were chasing with the bow, and had like at like sixty yards. From us, but couldn't couldn't get closer, couldn't get shot. You know, three days later in rifle season, and we had just mountain weather, right? That's the thing. September mountain weather, it's thirty degrees, and then it's it's minus five, and it's snowing, right? So we killed that bull with two inches of snow on the ground, shivering, soaking wet, and then, you know, by the time we got to the bull, the sun was out, it was ten degrees, the snow was melting, and we packed him out that night, and we drove. We were so pumped, we were so pumped about this nice bull. Everyone in the cloud and I were like, let's go to town, right? Well, town's like two hours away and you know we're on back roads for a while and then highways and then another highway and then get to town and everything was closed we had this whole plan like oh we're gonna go to the hot springs we're gonna go 
grab grab burgers yeah. and beers. They were come back with a fresh bottle of whiskey, and they were gonna get drunk in the in the in the tent. It's gonna be great. And I was just like, everything's closed. <laughs> I think we found one little pub that was open that we did like takeaway or something like that. Like grabbed a bottle of, bottle of booze from the liquor store. Oh no, it was liquor store is open. No pubs were open, and it was um, the gas station. So I think we just grabbed some some gas station or EW or something got attached to it and, and yeah. a bottle of booze and drove back. We're like, oh, fuck, this is too bad, right? Yeah. <laughs> You're so excited, man. It's, happened, it's yeah. happened so many times. It's brutal. Yeah. And we'd had spent like four nights in the mountains, right? And just packed out. We we're so pumped. It was just like, ah, blow out, right? Yeah. So but yeah, and, yeah. I know if you want to go into my season, we can we can jump into that for sure. Yeah, the only other thing I'll mention is I did uh my first like art like whitetail stand hunt. Um, and that was with Kettle River Guides. They've got a pretty cool thing, man. You can go do like a whitetail meat hunt, three days, 2,500 bucks. Um, oh. And I, I didn't see any bucks. I think one came in on the evening of night two, but it was so dark that I, I don't know for sure. Again, it was just like a body language thing. But then on the, on the third day, I smoked a doe, really nice, you know, good doe. Um, and that kind of got me fired up for more stand hunting, which is not something I've right. ever really done. But I was pretty shocked how into it I was. Like that is a shitload of fun, man. Different experience. Totally, totally different, different experience. Kind of aspects, yeah. But when you're sitting up there and they're 30 yards away and you got like does walking underneath you and you got to be crazy quiet and it's like, it's just a different type of challenge. I think for me, the ultimate would be getting a little rec property and like working it over a few years and figuring out that would be the true yeah, yeah. challenge that I would get really, cause it's hard That's to like, cool, just yeah. rock up to a joint and, and yeah, yeah. And I, hunt yeah. like that. It. Like you, you do need, you know, you got to have some idea of the movement patterns and the bedding areas and all that kind of stuff. So I think it would be a bit tough to do run and gun, but I'm already, I'm working with one dude and I'm going to go to Alberta kind of late November next year. Um, but I want to, I definitely want to do more archery stand hunting. Cause I think that. Yeah. It's a cool experience, right? Yeah. I think the, some of the fun of that kind of stuff is just watching deer that don't know you're there. Right. hundred percent. It happens more in a stand than it'll happen anywhere else. Right. Cause anywhere else they're going to kind of know you're there most of the time, or they're going to be yeah. aware that something isn't right. And, and they won't be quite as like, you know, inclined to just act normal and, and do normal behaviors and activities. Right. But it's kind of cool when you're like fly on the wall and they don't know you're there. Right. Yeah. hundred percent, man. So yeah, that's it. So let's, let's hear your, your mule deer season. Yeah, for sure. So, um, gosh, I can't even remember the, the timeline there, but, um, it was late October, early November. Um, I went up to the Ridge with Rick and I don't know if that was my first trip up or my second trip up. I can't remember if it already, like normally I kind of set cams up and it, it what ends up happening is I don't hunt October for deer. Um, but I try to get out last weekend of October or earlier to get cams up, but it always happens that, you know, you've gone all, you know, summer we're fishing and then um, September we're, we're pretty much elk hunting the whole month, yeah. you know, and then working in between and, and catching up with family and friends where we can. And so when October comes, it's just kind of got to get caught up in life and spend time with family and all that and, and do the good stuff at home. So I don't really get out there till last two weeks of October or the first week of November. And as luck would have it, that tends to be, fairly productive time to be up there anyway. So I've, I've been up there setting cams and killed deer. Right. And, right. And, and that's how I got the first buck was, was stickers. There was setting cams and doing laps. And it was just one of those days when the deer were on the move and, you know, I'm booking on foot trying to get the hell out of there before I get kind of stuck in the dark and can't make my way out. So 
end up jumping that deer and spending the night up there because I, I I knocked him down and then it was it was late so I was like there's no way I'm packing this thing out in the dark and doing the big journey home so yeah anyways we we got were up you there prepped and, for overnight uh, or did you just like yeah we've got kind of that little base camp set up in there right okay. so there's so you know we we always are packing some waters in and, and stocking it so that when we get up there in hunt season we're not like hiking in super heavy with a bunch okay. of gear and shit. Cool, cool. So we always kind of spend the time to, to stock it up, whether it's spring or, or late October to get some some shit to see us through, right? Nice. So that is kind of, you know, it's, you know, very unique to that scenario where we've kind of done like a, a permanent or semi-permanent canvas wall tent up there where we've, you know, cut a couple limbs down, done an A-frame and, and put the canvas wall over it and, and packed the stove in. So there's something like super like comfortable there. Yeah. But allows us to go in every weekend through all November without having to like, you know, get all your gear sorted and, and have this ultimate tent and all this other stuff, right? It's yep. like, we can just head in there and, and everything's there for us. It's just like That's lock in and go to work. Yeah. It's, it's super convenient, right? It allows you to hunt really hard. You can head out at in dawn and come back at dark soaking wet two hours after the sun sets and, you know, dry out, get comfortable maybe for the night, right? See, you guys are the epitome to me of this like philosophy of like putting in the work and developing a location, both for your elk and for your mule deer. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll get into it in more detail, but if anything, that's like one hole in my own game. Like I'm great at going off on these big, crazy places and, but I only ever go to them once and maybe I find something and maybe I don't, but it's like, yeah, I find that really inspiring because I really like the idea of like working a location and figuring out what works about it, what doesn't having it. And it doesn't even have to be as hardcore as having like a, a canvas tent, but just like, yeah, that that's really cool. I think that's probably another reason why you've had the success you've had is that persistence to like develop the location. I think most people think I'm just going to find this thing and it's going to be great. Yeah. And they don't realize yeah. that maybe part of it is like building the thing or developing the thing as opposed to just finding it. Yeah. I, 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 I Matt, it's integral to, to how I've killed my box. It's like, it's, I don't know if it's steelhead fishing or something like that, where, you know, the first year you start out, your fish is just being born or whatever. Right. And so that's, you know, the day you put your first cast in, I, I'm, I think it's still, I can't remember, but the same probably shows up everywhere. Right. But the day you decide you want to go try and catch a field steelhead on the fly, you know, that's the day that steelheads, you know, that's the year that steelheads being born and it's going to go to the ocean for three or four years. And then you're going to finally catch your first steelhead four years later. Right. Okay. I, I, I feel like that's how it is with, with a big mule deer, right? Like the, the day you say, I'm going to go kill a big mule deer here is like, the day that deer is being born and now you're going to have to hunt it for five or six years and, and catch that deer when he's five or six years old. Kind of yep. Thing, right? yep. Um, but yeah, that's definitely the way it's been. I've, I've, you know, you first time in the areas, you're very excited and you're kind of like, Oh, there's this, there's going to be a big buck in here. Oh, there's going to be a big buck in here. And then reality sets in, like, you know, you do that three or four times and then you really actually start to learn the area and you're really start to see, like, I saw a good sign here, but that was just because of the snow conditions. Or that's just because that was where the herd was that day you start to realize, you know, after, you know, three, four years, you really start to see consistent behavior, consistent areas, consistent kind of like patterns that these deer move in. And then you're kind of just locking in and fixating on the particular areas that you're going to find the deer in. And then a particular deer that's in the area that you want to kill. Right. And, and definitely when I'm hunting the Ridge, that's kind of what it is. Um, I've kind of given up on the fact that I'm just going to bump into a random mass of deer right. that's trucking through the area for some random reason. Right. It's like, I'm genuinely good or generally going to know the deer before I shoot it. Um, and generally there's only a couple deer over five years old in the area and right. those are the ones I'm going to be focusing on. Right. So 
everything else you're just kind of keeping tabs on and waiting for it to blow up or turn into something something special right and the odd time you know, deer always move right so the odd time they just wander off and disappear and the odd time something new just wanders in you're like okay cool but for the most part it's like i've already seen this deer in person or on camera or you know found its sheds or something right and then you kind of realize that the deer is in the area and start to really focus in on where it's hanging out right for sure but yeah it was getting back to the season um that first trip up it was it was super cool because i got it you know killed bart two years ago um we had this cool buck come in that had some junk and looked like it lost its eye uh it showed up a couple times and it was a really good sign i was like okay something mature moved in took over kind of bart's area and bart was kind of like the last mature deer that was in there that, that that we were aware of anyways and this buck looked promising and then didn't see it the next year, but saw another mature deer that maybe was it. We didn't get a good look at it through the camp. Never saw it in person. And so then the only buck that we were kind of knew about and were aware about um, was this kind of really cool, really good frame four point um, that, you know, on a camera looks like a stud. Right. But you can have are deceiving, right? Like how, how old it is, how big its ears are, how big its head is. And then these horns on it, like it just it had really nice, clean, deep forks front and back. Um, and not many deer there have good fronts and backs. You're kind of getting one or the other. Either it's a yeah. big, massive back forks and kind of crab claw fronts or, you know, some variation of that. But, you know, there's the odd buck. All the biggest bucks there are just like the, the first, like, three or four-year-old deer that actually has fronts and backs and all of a sudden it turns into something good, right? right. So uh, this buck was looking like a stud, but really didn't know how big he was because I couldn't, you know, had nothing to compare him to. And then I found his shed, you know, last spring or this past year's spring, um, in a known area, right? So found a shed and realized, okay, he's not that big. He's really not a big buck. I was like, he's, he's, you know, a three-year-old deer, two and a half or three and a half years old. Um, but he just got a really like good frame and didn't have brow tines really yet or anything like that. Very okay. like, you know, thin horned, you know, like, right. like, like three inches of mass, three and a half inches of mass kind of thing, like a very young buck. Um, anyways, first trip into this area, um, we split up and I started heading down to some, some open stuff. I was going to do a big lap. We had fresh skip of snow, I think. Yeah, we did. We had a fresh skip of snow. And so my whole idea is like, there's this one bench and I'm going to go do a lap around it and see if there's any fresh big tracks heading in or fresh big tracks heading out. And then Give me an idea of the started. size of the area you you work on the, the, the ridge. Like. So I'll, I'll work probably a total of like 5Ks in a day on like a big day. Okay. And then that 5Ks of hiking, I'm going to hunt like a, a 300 meter pocket. Yeah. And then... And then a 300 meter pocket. And then if I'm lucky, I'll get to like a third pocket like that. So I'm just, okay. there's like three or four places that you could probably kill a buck in and are worth hunting slow. And the rest of you are just kind of, you know, try not to go so fast that you sweat too much or, you know, ruin any chance of possibly killing something. Because okay. you're obviously going to bump deer in between these areas. It's just not as like promising that you're going to connect and make it happen. Right. Okay. So that's very small pockets, right? very small pockets and kind of look at like the timber hunting side of things. If you're hunting thick shit, you it's kind of like take all the areas out you can't kill a buck, and now you're left with what where you can kill a buck. Right. Right. And so it's it's kind of like if you depending on how you break it down, it's like you're 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 just you know, instead of saying, well, you can't kill a buck anywhere here, this place stinks and it sucks. It's kind of like, well, there's only a couple places I can kill a buck here, right? And then you kind of like, okay, well, that's where I gotta focus. How can I get from these points to these points and then hunt them really effectively? Right. And the deer are gonna be the same way, like the deer do not want to feed, bed, and eat all day, every day in heavy, shitty blowdown with like no visibility and, and super loud and something like that. Like 
they want to get on some nice benches. They want to get some of the other food sources. They want to go and chase those and do all this other good stuff. So it's like, yep. in my mind, that's kind of like the key, right? It's like find those little pockets that you can actually kill a deer in and then work them because the deer are actually going to end up in those places, right? So you're actually going to have, makes sense. you know, higher concentration of those spots. And like, yeah, you'll bump in the other areas. Yeah, they'll go bend those other areas to get some predators and, and, you know, find some reprieve from, from everything else. But generally they're going to end up in a few of these areas. So I just, I just basically do cycles through these areas, depending on the time of season and the kind of weather we're having. Right. And so um, some areas where like I killed Bart, that area gets substantially better when the snow hits. So the more snow in the high country, the more densely packed the deer get in there in early season, there might not be any deer. And Bart was there. And I think Bart was there early because um, we killed a very early season. It was, it was still October. I think we killed Bart. Um, but killed him very early. And I think he spent his whole winter there and he had broken his leg a couple of years prior or the year prior, which is the year he blew up and had like a 90, 93 or 94 inch one side. It was like, it was like seven, eight, nine points on the one side. And then just like a big, big four or five point on the other side that year. Um, I think is the year he broke his leg. And then that kind of sent a shock through his hormones and his horn just blew up because of it, but he stayed very close and he was on the cams all winter shed you know super close to where we found him on cams and the next fall he was literally there pre-season like pre-rut okay. he was already in there but to me he basically habituated himself with there he was he was doing good with predators he was get, doing good enough with food and he just wasn't spending a lot of time anywhere else and right. so it was like you know super lucky and when i bumped him we hadn't seen does hadn't seen tracks and i killed him that same day grunting grunting him in late october right so um, it was just one of those things where he'd habituated there, maybe because he broke his leg and was traveling less and then realized, fuck, I don't need to go summer up high and I don't right. need to wait for the snow to push me down. And this is just, you know, this place is good. Got enough food, got enough cover and nothing's bothering me. So um, he, I killed him early season and that area normally isn't the early season spot. It kind of packs full, like late season is really productive. If you go post right in there, it's like, you're going to see like, you know, on a good day, five or six young bucks in there, all just kind of like packed in their sock and they're doing their thing and you might bump a, bump a serious buck or might not. Right. But um, anyways, that's kind of a, a, a tangent there, but um, went to this, went to the spot that it's, that we found the shed started this lap and I started getting too low. I was getting kind of cliffed out. Yep. And I was like, miss my mark. Like I don't, I don't walk this route very often, but I was like, I miss my mark. I'm going to back out. Um, and then kind of climb up higher and, and circle into some better, better looking country. It's not so steep and, and, and cliffy, right? So backed up, kind of focusing on where I could find a route. And I found a bit of a trail and a bit of a route. So I just started grinding super steep. And I'm just kind of walking, walking, walking. Also, because I'm in an opening and it's kind of meadowy. I look straight up and then, you know, there's this stud buck standing there staring at me. And then there's a doe and there's another doe. I'm like, okay. So I went to binoculars first. I was like, okay, he's decent, but he's not massive and you know so i started grunting doing my thing and long story short um never actually I, I chambered around at one point um but i was never kind of going full bore like i gotta get ready to shoot this thing i was okay. still kind of gauging 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 realized he was serious enough chambered got my gun back on the shoulder and then i just i like, really wanted to look him over right and at this point you know i'm only 50 meters from him okay and the does are between like 40 and 60 right. Doing their thing. And it was really cool because, you know, these are those experiences where in a higher pressure area, it's like, you kind of get that one look where everybody's frozen and, you know, you may make a grunt and you can stop them once or twice, but generally they're kind of like 
screwed off at that point. Yep. You're going to have one kind of chance to get a shot off and you got to pick your, you know, are you going to shoot this or not? Is, is, is it the buck you're looking for or not? So it was really cool because he just calmed right down and just went to chasing the does and you start hearing this one doe. Did you get phone footage of this? Yeah. I, yeah, so I, I, guy, I, I've, so I saw, I, I watched this then. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I posted the whole story. Yeah. 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 He, I remember this. Rick knocking him down. I posted all that video, video footage of him. Right. And yep. um yeah, it was really cool. And, and what the video footage doesn't show is that he actually bolted out of the area and there ended up being two more does in the group. So it was four does and him, and he was just focused on the one doe that was with them. They all broke free, broke loose, whether they winded me or what, I can't, I'm not sure, but they broke free and they were gone. Okay. And I was just like, holy shit, like, that was sick. Like I spent 10 minutes with, you know, like 160 inch buck at 50 meters, right? Back and forth, hurting, you know, you know, neck stretched out doing his thing. And so I was just kind of like, you know, decompressing from yeah, yeah. that, unchambered, did my thing and like, you know, would have been on my way, but I was just kind of soaking it all in. And then literally this, this doe comes popping up over out of, the, out of this cliffy area, it comes popping out to me and then he's right behind her. And then he just literally just started dogging her right in front of me. I was just like, holy shit. So I got more footage of him again and I just let them kind of walk off, right? And I was like, God, it's wicked. And so, you know, I get up in this thing and I'm, I let them go and I kind of did like a soft circle around not to push them. Um, and I kind of just let them kind of get tucked away and I did my loop, got a spot of coverage. I had no coverage where it was, got a spot of coverage. And I sent Rick a message. I was like, Hey, this is a pretty solid buck in the area. If you see him, he's deep fork front and back. You know, he's a, he's totally worth hanging a tag on. Right. Yeah. Um, and at this point I was pretty convinced it was the buck from the year before. Um, and I kind of knew who he was and I was like, you know, right. he's really blown up, right. He's really solid. But like I wasn't going to launch my take with him. And, and funny enough, I ended up crossing a really mature track. And so this big track in this like, you know, early season wet snow. And I'm like, fuck, there he is. And I was like, so I text him again. He's like, he's coming right for it. Cause I know where Rick was or had a good idea. I was like, he is doing this other lap around the other side of this. I'm going to circle in and then he's going to work these, these um, kind of breaks on the other side. And so, so he's coming right for you. So I kind of dogged the track and blah, blah, blah. Well, long story short, he never sees him. I never see him. He's, he's on two or three groups of does. We do a big day hunting and then we're on our way out and we're kind of like, Oh, that was good. You know, tomorrow we'll head up high and, and hit the, the, the high country. Right. And run away. I'm just stomping our way through. And we jump that buck. Rick knocks him down, figure everything out. We're like, Holy shit. And then we realized like that was a different buck that was in there that morning that I cut his track. This buck hadn't moved 50 yards from where I left him. He dogged that doe, put her to bed and they bedded down. I walked all the way around him and, and just cut another big buck that happened to be in the area that did making, making rounds. Right. So, Really cool how it played out, but um, wicked buck as as good or better than what I thought he was when we got on him. Right? Yeah, he's he's healthily over like one sixty. Just had a really cool. He's like the epitome of like a perfect buck for how big he was. Like you you can't get a buck that's more evenly. You know, got some spread, got some mass, got forks. You know, big main beams that kind of curl in. It was just kind of like, you know, if that buck was any less perfect, I would have shot him for being like imperfect. If he was like really heavy backs and small fronts. He'd be like, oh yeah, this buck's never going to mount to anything else, right? He's, you know, he's already topped out and he's, he just doesn't have what it takes. He was just like that perfect buck that just had a bit of everything and just like kind of stacked everything up perfectly, right? Yeah. So it's a pretty sweet buck. Um, so we packed him out and then I came back, maybe three more trips and the buck that I was um, curious about the year before that might've been the same buck that lost his eye, um, but we weren't sure because we hadn't seen a good picture of him. That buck showed up able to compare those, or sorry, had him in, in summer, had a picture of him, 
knew he was going to be in the area when I saw the summer picture. I was like, that's it. Like he's, if he's summered in here um, and I had pictures from last year, I was like, he's going to be in here this year for sure. There's no way he's leaving this, this area. So I kind of figured he's in there. And then sure enough, he showed up on cam. I think it was the next week or the week after that, when I went up, he was showing up on two or three cams right near camp. And I was just like, okay, he's in there. And I kind of sat in camp that night and I was solo that weekend. Had had two or three pitches on him on, on different cams. And I was like, got to make a decision now because I think I'm going to bump this buck. I think this right. is, is going to be the buck that I bump into this weekend. And so I sat kind of, you know, fire roasting in the, in the wood stove and, and just kind of searching through the old pictures of him and the new pictures of him. And I was kind of looking, I was like, he's stacked on a lot of size over last year. Last year he was heavy. And so I kind of thought he's an old buck that maybe wasn't going anywhere. And then this year he had same mass and all of a sudden had fronts and backs and had like good clean forks, had spread. And I was just like, kind of looks like he's on the up still and like he's right. pretty solid. And I'm kind of like, you know, maybe he's five, six at this point and could have a couple of good years of growth in him. So I was like, he wasn't this, this buck that was going south and like, you know, has was losing his front forks was going to become a three point or something like that. And just had like, you know, back, big backs, something like that, that I see up there all the time. So I kind of looked at, it, I said, you know, he's, he's literally Rick's buck with like an extra inch on every time. He's, he's essentially the same buck that I walked on two weeks earlier. Right. I was like, and he looks like he's still on the up. And I was just like, I've killed Bart. I said, this, this buck's not as big as Bart. He's not as big as, as, you know, my other two biggest bucks or three biggest bucks behind Bart. He's, he's right in the same size zone. I was just like, I don't need to kill that buck on this ridge. Right. So I made that kind of decision consciously in my mind, knowing that, you know, see a buck on the run in the timber that has big forks and, and mass and you might, you might just pull the trigger. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, yeah. So I got in there uh, the next day, worked the the route where he, you know, where I killed Bart um, and started doing that. Cause now it was like kind of mid late November and sure enough, super foggy and shitty um, bumped a nice little buck in the morning. Um, went through that and then bumped like a herd and I could hear them. They're meandering, they're, they're bumping into each other, doing this and that. I just couldn't see anything. So kind of debated for a while, like, do I push in on them grunting or do I just kind of wait? And so I waited out for like 20 minutes grunting and they kind of just slowly worked themselves away. I just kind of figured, you know what? Best bet at this point, probably just with, with how much fog there is, I'll do a big lap around them. I've got a good a good route that takes you through some decent fur. As like, and I'll just kind of circle back in on them from above and hopefully the, the fog clears a bit. They calm down, bed down and I get on them, right? So Sure enough, don't jump any more deer, make a big lap. And I'm kind of working my way back in from above. And I bump two does as soon as they spring out of their bed. There's this nice open kind of shoot below me. And then this solid buck comes bombing out of there. So a couple of grunts and um, he ends up crossing this little kind of opening straight down below me about 100 yards, which is pretty long, pretty long shot for that area. Like most most of the deer, it's like you're 50 yards and end to right. uh, get a shot off. Yeah. So, it was kind of a cool spot for that. Managed to watch him running. He looked bigger in person than he did on cams, which kind of got the heart going. So I was chambered and I was up against a tree and then he just came across broadside. And I just kind of hesitated and figured, I think that's him and just didn't pull the trigger. And then I kind of sat there and questioned afterwards. He got some thick stuff, but um, I grunted and watched a few more times with the timber, got a couple glimpses of him. I was like, if it's not the same bucket, it's his carbon copy. Right. Just like, like a little wider than I expected him to be. And I was like, but everything else looks the same, right? Dark horn, same fork, same frame. Just look a little wider than what I saw on the camera, right? So I let him go, finish my route, got up in some really nasty weather, circled back in that night, bumped a couple more little bucks. And then the next morning, went back to the other place where, where, where we killed that buck with Rick and um, ended up finding the same small buck I saw that morning before, which is really cool because it's a really young buck with 
big front starting out, nice frame, and he's like two years old. And so for me, that's a kind of exciting part for that area. Is like when you see a young buck with good genetics, he's like, it's pretty exciting knowing that that guy makes it through another year or two and figures out his shit with, with cougars and wolves and all the rest. He's yep. going to be a really, right. He's one of those bucks that could be pushing a huge typical frame, which would be really sweet in two or three years. Right. So pretty, pretty pumped for the area for, for this coming year. Um, but like, no, I haven't pulled the trigger on a deer in I think two or three years since, since he killed Bart. Right. So, you know, not, not itchy trigger yet, but I'm sure this coming year I'll start to get the itch to try and try and put something down. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think that that kind of note about knowing what's in the area and where they're at also plays into this concept of like developing an area because you're not, you're thinking much longer terms. Like, it's not like I'm passing on this pretty nice buck. It's like, I'm letting this guy grow because I'm likely going to have a shot at this buck next year. And what I really want is this buck next year. Like this buck this year would be okay, but what I really want is this buck next year. Well, just to see what he's capable of. Like, like what is he going to do, right? And, and right. what I've kind of seen is, and I don't, you know, every area is going to be different and, and all deer are different, right? But if you can get to an area where there's not so much pressure, which is the reason kind of went where I went, um, I had a great spot with great bucks, you know, just as good, but probably better genetics than where I am now, um, where I killed most of my bigger bucks. Um, but it was, you know, there was pressure. Right. And it was like, you let a buck walk, there was no guarantee you would see it again, right? Yeah. You were just hoping to make it through the other hunters and you happened to be the hunter that was able to bump into him, right? So it was one of those things where letting a buck walk didn't really mean anything. It was like, it's just as likely killed by somebody else, right? So um this area i have a confidence where you know there's there's the odd boot track in there but almost nobody hunting it if, if anybody more than once a year gets in there it'd be you know surprising for me for sure it's it's basically just me and and rick and a couple others in there that are our friends right so when when i'm in there it's kind of like that buck i saw this year that young one don't have high hopes like fingers across but you know that's the deer that's gonna be killed by cougar this year like it does seem like a lot of young deer get killed yep and if they can make it to like four or five, that's really when they kind of settle in and start wintering in the same area in that spot. And so you find their sheds, you're killing them in that spot next year, or you're bumping them in that spot again next year. And, and once they survive like their third or fourth year, it's kind of like they're going to get away from the cougars and the wolves from here on out. Right. Right. Like they'll, they'll, they'll meet their demise. Don't get me wrong. Like they're going to get killed by a cougar or wolf eventually, but you know, they're very more resilient than the, than the younger deer are in that area. Like they kind of just end up in some blowdown in the winter. They hunker in and, you know, the cougars don't seem to get on them and the wolves won't go near that country, right? They stay in the open stuff and, and do their thing. So it kind of works out that if you see a buck through to that, like four or five years old, there's like a good chance you're going to catch him the next year or two, you know, still alive, still kicking it and really focused in the same spot, like not traveling far, locked in, owning that area and kind of, you know, going where he sheds every year right and I've, I've got to the point where I've, I've literally found sheds 10 feet apart from from one year apart find like a nice four point frame like oh cool look five feet over there's a shed from the last year and you're literally thinking like a deer walks a kilometer or two or five in a day sometimes just you know fooding bedding this and that it's like and they shed between a window that's like a month long or, or even more right yeah you know summer summer as early as december and, you know, summer as late as March, middle of March, it's like, you know, over a two month period, this deer happens to end up in the exact same spot twice and sheds. It just kind of shows, showed me that like how many deer will end up in the exact same spot. Right. And, and you know, so many other times I've talked to, you know, find a shed here, 
kilobuck there, right? It just ends up happening. I wonder too, if they've ever done any research about like the propensity or the likelihood or, or like how repetitive shedding behavior is with one deer, like deer as a whole have this big window. But I wonder if like a deer tends to have like the same kind of patterns because it all has to do with hormones. So it's like, and you would think if they have relatively the same food available and relatively the same circumstances, maybe that window, you know, would be interesting thing to, I'm sure somebody's done some research on that. I have no idea. Yeah. So yeah, if a buck sheds, you know, January 1st, one year, does he shed, you know, same week next year, or is he two months out? Right. And yeah. There's got to be something said for that. The main variable there, just like how healthy they go in the winter and how nutrient like rich the forage is that year. And, and 100%. how bad the snow is, right? Yeah. But I almost kind of wonder if everything was similar, will they end up in the same place at the same time dropping the horns? And that's why they become predictable. Right? Yeah. So even if it's not the same week, do they end up going through the same thing? Like the snow tends to, even if the snow melted four weeks later, well, the, when the snow melts, that's when they go to this place. And so the kind of like, incentives or the motivating forces that are at play all kind of combined up to that where they're most likely going to be doing the same kind of thing in the same place or 90 percent in the same area because of all that kind of similar kind of stuff happening yeah yeah for sure right there's got to be a bit of that and you know when i first started shed hunting area it was weird because i was like i found so many different sheds and what ends up happening is in bc it's like if a shed's five years old you can't tell if it's five years old because right. depending what, how much sun hits that spot and like where it's buried and how wet that area is, it's like five-year-old shed could look like it's eight years old or it could look like three years old. And it's like, so it's finding sheds. And I was like, Oh, these genetics are so similar. And then I just cleaned the area out. I just shed hunted the shit out of it and literally didn't realize until long after that, that those sheds were so similar. That was the same buck. Right. And it's just, you know, the smaller, younger version of him just happened to be in a sunnier spot that just got, you know, like sunbaked or sorry, vice versa, his older shed of when he was older, which was the freshest shed ended up being in like the sunniest spot and looked chalked out. and was like, looked like it was a different buck. And in reality, what I've found is like, you know, half a dozen sheds off the same buck spread out, you know, in, in various areas. And that's why they'll look so similar because it was the same buck, you know, at age four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And I was just picking up random sheds from him that didn't get picked over by rodents and, and, and were findable. Right. And it's just like, you couldn't tell at the time because you're just finding sheds and like, cool, this yeah. is a big buck. Cool. That's a lots of big typicals in here. And then you realize, Oh, that was one deer and, you know, managed to find the same sheds over and over and over again. It's just, you know, some looked older, some looked fresher and it didn't, wasn't relative to his age because it was just one got more moisture, one got more sun and the age of different, different rates. Right. So it's kind of hard to tell early on in an area like that, how, how that's the same buck or not. But then after I, I, you know, basically shed hunted every inch of it, I kind of realized that was one buck, right? And, you know, I found this other heavy slug buck that I got on camera and, and found a similar buck coming up in, in age. And I'm thinking, holy smokes, there's like this weird thug gene where they just get these heavy baseball bats and blade it out. I'm like, this is cool. I'm going to find another buck like this. And then, you know, you look back five years later, it's like, fuck, that was the same buck. It was just, you know, that one just looked way older as a young deer, but it was sitting in this nice grassy slope that had, you know, good sun exposure in the summer and it just got sunbaked, right? So yeah. it looked like it was five years older, but it actually wasn't, right? So it's kind of funny. You look back and, and what it makes you realize is that you're hunting a small population of bucks, right? Right. This ridge holds, you know, 40 deer. And it's a small, small place for 40 deer, but, you know, only 50% are, are bucks. And then they die more often than the does because they're fighting and competing and all that. So 
maybe it's only 30 year bucks, right? And then you get to it, it's like, there's only four or five deer that really live to be an old age out of that 30, right? So at any given time, you're, you're, you're not hunting a very big group of, of mature deer. Yep. There's a lot of one-year-old to three-year-olds, and then there's the ones that make it through, right? Um, and so you realize you're really picking on, you know, particular deer that are going to go the distance that are going to get mature and going to be, you know, cool deer to shoot one day, right? Yep. Yep. Um, and it's not like a never any supply. It's like, you gotta be very selective. And if you don't know the area, like good luck, right? Good luck. Just kind of randomly bumping into one of these, you know, four or five deer that live in the area and, and getting a shot. And that's kind of where the, the timing pays off. You know, that like, we're going to end up here, they're going to end up there, they're going to end up here. And it's just a matter of timing, snow conditions and all the other shit that goes into it to make uh make an encounter work. Right. Yep. hundred percent. Okay, so let's get into some of the more technical part. And this something I've found interesting, both when we're talking about your mule deer hunting and your uh, elk hunting, is that you have purposefully compromised like uh, herd quality in order to get away from pressure, very consciously, um, in order to have in order to change what type of hunt that you're you're going to have. I would like to hear what your kind of parameters or what are you looking for in a spot? Is it the combination of like, like it can't be too good because then everybody's going to know it's good or, it, yeah, you know, yeah. I kind of want to find that those little secret hidey holes. Like what's your actual approach when you're like, okay, I need to go develop a new spot or I need a spot in the first place. Yeah. And I've had a lot of methodology when I went into this, my current spot. Um, I mean, part of it, like a big part of it is just wanting to explore deeper further and like, if you don't have that as a hunter, it's kind of weird almost, right? Like, yep. like generally the, as soon as you get on foot and start hiking, it just makes you want to go further. Yes. Cause you just like, you get to where your legs end and you say, fuck, I really wish I could have gone to that next ridge or really could have gone to the next gully. And I wonder what's up there. And I was still on tracks. So there must be, they must be all over the next ridge. Right. So you always yeah. have that. And then reality is normally it's further is not the answer, but um, <laughs> they end up being somewhere in between. Right. Yeah. But um, it's one of those things I was, I was looking at, you know, okay, do I hunt? good areas with good genetics with lots of deer where there's lots of pressure. And that's probably one of the top ways to kill a decent deer is to go where there's no one big deer. There's no one good country. There's good habitat and there's good access. Like you're going to just, you know, you're going to have more luck in a scenario like that, where you're just going to randomly bump into a right. rock. That's decent. It's like, that's probably a really good deer way to kill a deer. Um, and that's kind of maybe where I was before this, but what is happening is that you're, you're at the point where you're going to cap out and just say, you're just waiting on luck. Yeah. Right. You can, and bad luck too, like you've already mentioned, you could just as you could be lucky and bump into something, you can be unlucky and somebody else is going to bump into it. So there's, you, you have less control over the success okay. of, of the hunt. Yeah. And so I think as at this point, I was just trying to impose, you know, control and, and your will on, on finding a big buck and, and, and making it happen. Right. So I was, I'd killed like two or three deer that were just kind of like that 170 mark, um, and you know, age is the coolest part. The, the, the inches is just, you know, another way to measure it and look at it. But ultimately if you get the age and like the genetics, that's when it's really cool. And I've got like this buck that's old and it's got all the things going for it to make a giant deer. So yeah. like, that ends up being the pursuit. Right. Um, and so this is kind of, when I was looking at this area, I was really looking for something that had like cool, like steep mule deer country with really good summer range, really good winter range. And ideally, Nobody is going to catch them in the summer range and no one's going to bump them on the winter range through logging roads and shit like that. Cause reality is 
even deer that loves the country or, or, you know, try to, or are so smart. They don't go in the cuts very often in daylight. They're still going to cross the road after a doe sometime. They're still yeah. going to, you know, cross for food or a transition period of the year when they transition from a storm. Somewhere. They're still going to cross the road. Somebody's going to spot them, shoot them or whatever, or tell their friends and the pressure is going to get in there and somebody's going to start killing these deer when they're, when they're, you know, young and about to be big or when they're big and, and have a few good years in them and they're getting killed. Right. So yeah. I really want to have an opportunity to like be in a place where I can walk away from deer consistently knowing that like no one else is shooting them. Um, and so for me, I was like, they, if any good Alpine peak, you know, some BC hunters can go and find them and spot them. Right. So yep. I was trying to find a place that wasn't so obvious that had still good summer range with, with, with good feed in the summer and then had like, you know, good quality winter range. And, and most places in BC, in my opinion, it's like, you're going to hit winter range where it can only hold so many deer. Right. And it's only, and it's, it's only capable of, of so much. Right. So, so the, the summer range might be wicked and these wicked peaks and all these basins and God, it's gorgeous. But like, where does that deer go? It has to go somewhere in winter and there's not something decent to winter on. You're not going to have, you know, 40 mature bucks in the area, right? right. They're going to, you know, it's, it's just going to thin the herd. The herd's only going to get so big because the land's only going to be able to support so many on the winter range. Right. So um, kind of looking for something with good, good winter range, really good summer feed. And then, you know, how that, what that terrain is, it doesn't really bother me for hunting because it's just like, I'll go figure that out whether it's open or, or thick or not. Right. But um, definitely timing for me was good when I first started going to this area because wolves were kind of becoming a problem in BC and that thick country was super, super um, convenient for the deer because sure. they could jump, jump the blow down and the wolves yep. just kind of steer away from it. So yep. they would hunt the open fur and take out a couple of young bucks and then kind of that's it. They move on They'd go back up the high country, chase moose, whatever. Right. But they'd kind of do their round in there and they wouldn't really work the deer over that hard. So it was good timing that way that that kind of type of country kind of lends itself to deer being good at surviving against wolves and cougars will always be there and they'll do decent in the blowdown. You know, they can walk the logs and all that man bush from trees, but um, the bottom line is cougars, you know, aren't plethora and, and aren't turning into packs. Like, sure. like wolves are the same way. So they're not going to go in and wipe a whole herd out or, or push deer into some really shitty country they don't want to be in. And then, you know, there's not doing well and you can't hunt them. Right. So, um, that kind of worked in my favor. Uh, but now that I've done it, you know, my, that's my an interesting insight, up. man. You never hear people complain about cougars. Like they're they there. See, like, like, yeah. But even with the anything. elk, you know what I mean? Like uh, I, I'm thinking up the yeah. musquin stuff. It's not like cougars come in and just wipe out, but like, that's kind of the impact. I almost think like cougars are a much more like, uh, like level population. Whereas like wolf populations tend to go like really high and really low and they tend to, and this is exactly what you're mentioning. They tend to have a much more severe impact on, um, the, the prey populations, whereas the cougars are kind of just like always there and there's always going to be a little bit of kill, but they don't seem to like detrimentally affect the, the health of the herd to the point where you're like, there's nothing left here to hunt. That's, I never actually thought about that before. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're, you're not far off. Man. I think that's, that's probably fairly accurate from anyway, from what I'm seeing. And if I was going to say, if I could do anything to prove that area that I'm in, it'd be to kill a cougar for sure. There's no huh. doubt because there'll be, you know, eight or nine cougar kills in a year there. If I hunt it early enough, I'll find them. Yep. Um, and what, I, what it looks like is that the cougar goes in and the cougars make make a kill every other week or whatever they do. And then the wolves will do around and clean up the kill sites. Okay. Because they'll catch wind of it. And so you'll go in and everything's pulverized. You know, there's barely a bone left on the thing and, and your jaw bones are gone, teeth are gone, skulls crushed, everything's mowed down. You're just like, holy shit. And you're like, 
But I'm pretty sure it's a cougar kill most of the time. I'm right. pretty sure it's a cougar kill that the wolves come in and just, you know, they're in their hunting and they pick get on, over. The, on a cougar kill and they, they pick it over and take it, take, yep. take down whatever's yep. left of it, right? So I tend to think, you know, there's a couple of cougars in the area for sure on cam um, that I've gone over the years. Their lane of beating, but it's like, it's just stable. Yeah. So there's yeah. 40 deer and they kill 10, 10, 10 every winter. And they do every year and the herd just and, 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 and replaces then the them and, and you absorb it. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems kind of stable, but yeah, if, you know, if I knock down a, a cougar, there might be an extra mature deer every year, or there might be an extra couple four points every year that make it right. So, yeah. um, but anyways, I, I don't have the time to go up there in the winter anyways to, to pursue them. It'd be a, it'd be a nasty cougar hunt in the winter up there. It's just too, too remote to get into, but right. Um, yeah, that'd be kind of, kind of probably the thing to, to improve in the area, but um, yeah. What else were we talking about there? Kinda well, we were time. doing location. I just want to call out the insight because this is really interesting because your insight about the quality winter range and the quality summer range, and then kind of being a little ambivalent about the territory that they're in, in between is almost opposite. Most people are looking like, okay, where would want to, where would deer want to be right now? Which I don't think is a bad outlook, but I think it explains why sometimes you find perfect deer country with no fucking deer. Yeah, because I yeah, think be, right? you're you're calling out this. If they're not going to be supported in the winter or in the summer, then it doesn't matter how good it is in there in the shoulder seasons. They're ju- the deer just aren't going to be there. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. No, for sure, for sure. So yeah, that's that's kind of my approach for areas. I'm going to look at that, and you know, I kind of like the idea of like to think big and then and then think small. So if you think about BC, there's not many places in BC that don't have big deer. Right. There really, there really is like, like everyone's heard of a spot that has big deer, you know, oh yeah, I've heard this round, I've heard of that range, I've heard of that valley or that river or whatever. Like, oh yeah, I heard big bucks one of there. So it's like, you kind of think big, you're like, okay, well, that's where I want to go. because I've heard there's big deer in there or, you know, I've heard old tales from, from old hunters or whatever. Um, and then it's kind of like, oh, that big area kind of condense it to a couple ridges or a couple slopes or a couple kind of basins or whatever. And then it's kind of like that, then, then it's the investment of like, okay, now go fucking prove it. Like, what's actually in there. Right. So cams and then, and then shed hunting. Right. And that's kind of my approach is like, there's only one way to tell if there's big deer in an area. Right. It's like either, you know, so there's only three ways to, I guess, find if there's a big deer. Either you're going to get them on a trail cam, you're going to find a massive shed or you're going to see it in person. Right. Right. And seeing it in person is like the hardest and biggest investment. So it's like, you know, if you can't spot them in the summer range, like you're good luck in the October. And if you don't know the area really well, um, and then come, come November when it's rut, it's like, you've got to be dedicating your whole rut to a new area, right? right? So really nice way is to have an area. And this is, this is how I kind of developed this area is it took, you know, my first year was just cams and then the second year, and then the cams got buried in snow. I can never get back to it. So gone. Didn't get them until like July the next year. Okay. And then saw everything I wanted. I was like, holy shit, here we go. So then I was like shed hunting, right? Um, so then I spent the next like two years shed hunting. And then finally I was like, okay, you know, I can't hike in there in a day and kill a buck and hike out. So it's going to be overnight trips. So then, And is that what you've been doing for like cam trips and shed trips is just like bomber day trips? Massive day trips, right? Yeah. Early, early on the morning, full day and back super late at night. And then, and then at least you got to see the country, put your boots on the ground without having to to think things through too much. Right. So um, getting into that. And then, you know, what ended up happening is I had a really big buck on cam. And then two years later, I found one of his sides, um, that was quite old at the time. So I thought it was a different deer that had the same genetics and it probably was. Um, but then I kind of had the two pieces of the puzzle. It's like huge deer here or mature deer and, and fairly big here and sheds here. And I was like, okay, like I've already picked up on two major things. Like October they were here that, and then the snow got too deep and they were 
gone. I couldn't get my cameras a week later. Right. Right. And then, you know, I find sheds down here in the spring. It was just like, so I've got this band that I need to work and figure it out. Right. And I literally, when I first saw this area, I thought I could walk that band in a day. Okay. And reality of how thick that country is, like, there's no way you're, you're hiking half that in the day. Right. Like it's, it's just. Isn't that so hilarious about BC? Like I'm, I'm planning my, my sheep hunt for later this year. And it's like, I don't know, man. Like, Maybe that's a day. Maybe it's three days. Like, I, yeah. like you just, it, it's so crazy how, yeah. like I've had days that are like three kilometer days. Like that's, and I busted my ass all day and that's how much ground I was able yeah. to cover. And then you could have a 15 kilometer day. Like it's, it's so just, yeah. it's so wild in BC how the variation in like the difficulty and how much ground you can cover in a day. Oh, two hours to go 200 meters. And then, yeah. you know, 20 minutes to go to go a kilometer right yeah. and like that's just how it changes so quickly right and you do enough of those in your um enough of those in your history and you, and you, you tend to back out of those those two hours for 200 meter areas yeah. and realize it's not worth it find another yeah. route because the animals don't like it either but uh yeah that spot is, is particularly bad that way right it gets it's um it's very thick and that's kind of what helps with those pockets is that you know focus your time in there right because there's no point in hunting the, the extreme thick stuff yep just work the like you know semi-thick stuff or really thick stuff, right? Where it's not so, so, so bad, right? And when you're finding this stuff, how do you, like, is this all in your head? Are you taking GPS points? Are you oh, drawing man, I'm out just, on a I'm map? Just, I'm just looking when I'm driving anywhere, hunting anywhere, I'm just looking at every ridge and then something catches your eye and then you go look at Google and I'm I'm a sucker for Google. I, I you know, you say it's like, it's hard to judge stuff. Like you constantly just go look at it all the time. You say, I did this hike in like two hours. We day hunt that. And like then that hike and, and I can do it in, you know, a morning, dawn till dusk. And then you go look at some other areas. Like, so you try to compare elevation and distance and figure out, you know, what's doable, but I ended up just pouring over stuff, you know, for way too many hours on Google earth, just trying to like, you know, eke out where and what I'm looking into and what I should get my feet into. And then you go and it's always worse than what you think, but yeah, then I kind of make a trip, right. Find the route in, find the closest access point, you know, map out a spot that you think you could, you could drop into a gully, cross that creek, get over there. And then you'd be kind of up on this little bench or on this little ridge or whatever. Right. So that's kind of how that went that spot and you know so much of the way I was just lucky you know I got up there the first time in the fog and like I couldn't see anything right and I was just like it's this way and then I just got into like high elevation spruce and it's like you're just walking through that you have no bearing where you are yeah with fog and, and you cannot see any undulation in the land you can't see peaks or valleys or anything and they just kind of also get to the place and I just kind of sat there for an hour and I was like well I should probably cut it quits it's like 3 p.m and I have no idea if I'm going to make it to this spot. And so I didn't have an in-reach or, or a GPS at that point. But sure enough, fog kind of lifted for a second. And I could see the bench right in front of me. I'm like, fuck, there we go. But this little, like, 50-foot gully is actually like a 300-yard canyon that I have to cross. And so I was just like, fuck. So I just got to do it. But you know what? It's funny. I did that, crossed it, got on this fresh layer of snow. And, and that was the day I set, like, three cams that ended up breaking that spot open for me because – there was just rubs everywhere, trails everywhere. And I'm just like, every tree was torn to bits. I was just like, holy shit. I was like, yeah. what did I just stumble onto, right? Yeah. Like middle of nowhere. It's like, it actually like, you know, the promised land here. Yeah. So dropped a couple of camps. And I like literally ran out of there trying to get to my quad before dark. And then, you know, I'm like a, a two and a half hour quad ride out of there to try and get back to my truck, load up and get home. And, you know, super banger day, but I almost stopped and almost turned around because of the fog and, and shitty visibility didn't know where it was. I almost turned around and head back out and just like lucky that I, that I managed to make it all come together, got, got on the ridge, figured it out. And the funny part is I've never been back to that spot. Now, 
I've set some cams in there for sure, just to, to see what's on. But it's totally one of these areas where they're coming off summer range when there's a storm and there's a bit of snow and they kind of just shoulder into that area. And then they kind of just wait for the big snow and some of them move right down right away and others kind of hang out there. And so I, I set cams here and there just to see what's, what's going on. But generally they're kind of there until the snow pushes them out, which right in the rut, it could be last week of October or second week of November anywhere in there. It's a good time to be in there, but the snow is so unpredictable that, you know, you might go up there one day and it can't get in there. Right. So, so it's more of a transition then, zone. It is. Yeah. So they move through there. It's a great place to cam. Um, they come up in the summer and you catch them in the summer on the way up and you catch them in the fall on their way through before, before the snow um, pushes them right out. Right. So it's kind of cool, but I, I'm finding more and more like a lot of deer will wait for the deep snow, but a lot of deer will just move right away too. Right. So there's going to be deer to hunt either way. It's not like every big buck's just going to wait till the snow is to the chest deep. Like, you know, a good portion, two thirds of them will, will just pop right down and a couple stubborn ones will just kind of, you know, be pounding snow chest deep for, for a while until they get pushed right out of there. Right. And I've got pictures of them, you know, they're plowing a tunnel, you know, crossing those benches and some of that. And you're just like, what the hell? Like you yeah. can't hunt in that. Right. Like you just wouldn't get in there. Right. Yeah. You spend, you spend all day hiking through that stuff to get there. Cause you just wouldn't be able to move quick enough. Right. So I've had those days where I'm like, this, yeah. is, yeah. this is dumb. Like, this is just, this is a bad yeah. decision. <laughs> okay. I'm going to go to some of the questions. Cause we're, we're, I know we're, we're getting a bit late here. And maybe we'll try and do some like um, answer them a bit like um, a little quicker instead of me just asking these fucking long ended long winded questions. I'm trying to think. I did see one. There's one that was grunting and rattling and and oh yeah okay so let's ju- let's start right there. How effective do you find grunt tubes or rattling? Yeah, so so it's funny that uh, my biggest buck before I killed Bart was I rattled him in one year. Um, and it's a good story. Um, I was up with a buddy and he's not in as good shape as me. I won't name his name. So he, he remains anonymous. Don't call anonymous. him out. Yeah. <laughs> but essentially, you know I who you are, in. you fat fuck. <laughs> and he literally hiked in and we got this like wicked spot. It's like this little cutting of, 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 of trails, right? Where there's deer cross all the time. And he's unzipping zippers. He's hacking and coughing from breaking a sweat. He's unzippers are open. So I literally was just like, as quick as he started making noise, I was just like rack, rack out. And I just smashing the atlas together the whole time he was moving around. So I did like this five minute smashing bang as hard as I could. And I'm looking up and looking sideways and looking all over. And, and, and then finally started to quiet down. And so I kind of took a break and then I went to go again, looking up, looking over, looking down. And I look at him and he's like freaking out. He's grabbing his gun, his jacket's on the ground and he's running down this deer trail like a wild batch and I was like, what the fuck is going on? And so I boogie after him and he's like looking at me and he's like, yeah, he's like, he's like, I was just like drinking this chocolate milk and, and he's like, I was about to grab a cigarette. And he's like, and then I, I turned around, <laughs> I turned around and there's this huge buck looking at me. He's like, it's huge, man. It's huge. I'm like, fuck, okay. So, you know, sure enough. So I rattled, I rattled a really big buck in that way. And we chased them and I got footage of him again um, after we split up and, and, and bumped him a couple times. Got footage of him, and that was like the biggest buck I'd ever killed. Um, he got up, he got, he, I let him walk that year, got footage of him, all that. And I've got a post on BC Backcountry a ways back, right? And um, literally the next year, I ended up shooting him um, like 300 yards below that, you know, late season. And the only reason I was able to kill him was because I followed a track in there and, and got this big herd, and he kind of popped out. And I saw his shitty G2 that was like a shriveled up worm. And he had this massive four point frame otherwise, right? Big main beams. He's like 26, 27 inches wide and 
you know, he's got like these 12 inch G G3s coming off his back forks. And he just had this little dinky kind of shriveled up G2. And so as soon as I was in his binoculars or gun up, um, and I saw that, I knew who I was looking at. And I was like, that was that buck, that big buck I passed on last year. And so in my mind, I didn't know if he's bigger at this point. I didn't have a good enough look at him, but I was just like, fuck, he's a year older. He's got to be bigger. Right. So I whacked him and like, he probably went in for inch identical to the year before he, he, he gained an inch here, lost an inch there. It was like no extra mass. Just like, he was just that buck with this. He was exactly the same the year after, right? yep. but still a really, really solid buck. Right. Uh, but rattling, I always do it. I've had very little success. That would be one of like the random times that it worked very well. Um, and pulled that buck straight into like 15 yards. Basically just came over this rise and, you know, my buddy turned around and saw him like face to face staring at him neck above the snow and just like, holy shit, right? Like just locked eyes and buggered out of there. Right. But, um, generally most encounters I'm burping and I'll, I'll use my voice, um, out of convenience. Um, if I don't have my, my grunt tube with me, um, but I use one like the Primo's, um, can't remember what it's called, but it's got like a yellow, kind of a yellow tab on the top and then a gray kind of tube on it and okay. it's got like a little compass embedded in it um, and you can blow on it and you can suck on it and it's got reeds in both directions that you can kind of tune to the sound you like and I normally go kind of mid-range it's not the the deepest and it's not the the highest pitch one um, but I'm generally just leaving my, my my zipper open the thing's tucked in my chest against my skin because if you don't it'll just freeze up okay and so that's kind of advantage to burping with your voices you don't have to worry about freezing up but um and they both work right like like deer tend to hear that noise and doesn't have to be perfect and, the, and it kind of coaxes them down relaxes them and if it's pre-rut they seem to make them pretty aggressive sometimes they come charging in that's kind of how i killed bart was just grunting and he just came in on a string like ready to fight right so grunting for me is like kind of it's in my everyday kit i use it non-stop all the time every situation i'm i'm normally grunting um with that grunt tube or with my voice one one of the other kind of thing Okay. That makes sense. But I like grunting. Grunting, you can just move, right? Grunting, you just move. It's like you're not setting up a new sequence. You're just yep. moving through deer country, grunting, and you're jumping and, and does and bucks doing that, and you're calming them down half the time, and they kind of get a second look and maybe go back to running, right? So it's kind of it, like it's the It's very similar to the strategy I use my cow muse for when I'm elk hunting because it's like I'm walking around and making noise anyways, and just every five or six minutes, I just let out a couple of cow mews, and then it's like, well, and if they hear me, they're just going to think I'm a cow walking around. Yeah, making uh, noise. And elk so worst-case scenario, I sound like an elk, you know, and if there are no elk here, well, who cares? It's not like I'm sitting around really? wasting a half an hour waiting for something to come out. You know what I mean? Um, okay, we've already done that already talked about i mean you've talked a lot about timber hunting this guy says something about timber hunting maybe okay one of the things that i found very interesting that it took me a while to learn is and you touched on it in this podcast like not all areas are created equal and if you treat the whole ridge like quality still hunting you're never going to go anywhere but if you don't but if you but if you blast through all of it you're going to bump everything. So maybe talk a little bit about how, how do you get, how do you get between the good spots without blowing everything out? And what are a couple of things that you start to look for to be like, okay, I better slow the fuck down. Cause like I'm starting yeah, to yeah. get into that still hunting quality territory. Yeah. Um, so I kind of like, it's just general terms. Cause the, the other problem is when you start describing stuff like this is like people end up imagining an area and it's not what you're walking through. So I'll right. kind of like um, 
kind of precursor to this, just like all ears have their subtleties to them, right? And it's just like some nice open fur. You can move a lot quicker. You can glass a little bit more. The thicker the area, the less you can glass in my mind because you step and you open up 600 little different Swiss cheese holes to use your binoculars on. Like you just can't get anywhere glassing, right? So yeah. the thicker the area, the less your, your glass is going up, the more open the area, the more your glass should go up and kind of catch a deer on the move or catch a head or an ear flicker from a hundred yards out rather than bumping it, right? So I'm at the point where I, most areas I'm hunting, there's not a lot of glass going up because I just, I couldn't, I couldn't sit through there and, and, and spot every little wormhole or cheese hole through all the branches and wheels to try and find a deer. But that being said, I'll make an, you know, I'll stop and listen long enough to hear noises and catch flickers and movement. And then it's binoculars up and then kind of the picture starts to evolve and things start to come to life and you kind of grunt and move and slide in and kind of start to see what's in the area. Right. But um, that being said, kind of on that scale of like, you know, country's so thick, you can't move through it. Um, you're just gonna make too much noise and stuff like that. So it's very hard. You just, at that point, you just have to make noise and, and get over it and move. Yep, yep. Um, and then kind of the areas are kind of, you know, my pace is dictated by how much sign I'm seeing at the time and how much I expect to see deer in that area. And a lot of time, if, if I get on fresh tracks, I always just kind of go into stealth mode, right? They might not be huge tracks or anything, but to me, active deer in an area, like I, I don't have five kilometers of country hunt. I got a couple 300 meter patches. So as soon as I get into something half decent, that's fresh, I'm, I'm hunting it pretty hard. Yep. I'm slowing down, moving quieter. Um, and snow conditions make a huge difference in that for me. Like my preference is zero snow or snow. That's like soft and so quiet. Isn't it wild? The difference is we got hammered by that on the mule deer hunt this year where like half the days were perfect snow. And the other half was like the worst snow you could paw. Like it was like, and you're just like, are you fucking kidding me, man? Like, I, like the deer are hearing me for hundreds of yards right now, and there's yeah. nothing I can do about it. Like, my, and it was my, like my it had got just warm enough that it was like melty enough that it was squeaky, yeah. but that like really cold, fresh powder. That shit's beautiful because it's like somebody put a blanket over everything, and even your echoes are dying down. And it's like, yeah, but it's yep. uh, it's so wild how different the snow can impact the amount of noise that you're making. 100%. And um, I, it's funny, like, like people talk about loud snow and heat. I, my preference is this low snow or no snow or very quiet snow or the loudest snow you can have. And if you've got the loudest snow you can have and really frozen ground type situation where you're cracking popping, that's like the only stuff that deer make noise in as loud as you do. Huh? And you literally have bumped deer in that and I can hear them run 150 meters and circle back and then come in for a look and check me out and they will bump and spook and scare and still come in for a look or they'll literally take you as a deer. And it's just like, you know, you're grunting, you're making noise, but they make just as much noise. They cannot move through that really, really loud stuff any quieter than you can, but everything else in between, it's kind of like this three inch little track and the way deer's elbows work, you know, where they're kind of like almost stomping backwards. Like they're not like rolling a foot forward and like kind of crunching slowly. They just kind of plop that foot down and it just goes straight through all the snow and it gets muffled because there's this little skinny ankle that goes in there with this little paw. It's like they make no noise in like fairly noisy snow and you're just making a pile of noise. So those conditions I find really hard. And that's kind of like my first two years in the area. It was snow early season. It was deep, um, you know, we couldn't get in very easily. Uh, like start of November, we'd already had multiple snowballs, snowfalls. 
And I found that those seasons were really sparse encounters, like really sparse. Like would hunt dawn till dusk on foot in premium areas, wouldn't see deer. Okay. Wouldn't see deer. And like, can you imagine like hiking 10 hours in the best country you can, you can imagine or, or think that you're going to find deer and, and you can't even see a deer. And so I had laws and That's my blacktail hunting experience. <laughs> like I have seasons and like people think I'm full of shit. The best season I ever had, um, I had 30 days into my season, including like preseason scouting, hanging cams, checking cams, days hunting. And in that 30 days in the flesh, I saw one deer and I killed it. And it was like, and it was like, you, you hear people complaining about, oh, it's hard to stay motivated when I don't see any animals. And it's like, dude, I don't even know if there's any fucking deer here. Like, <laughs> let alone am I not seeing them? They're like ghosts. I don't, I'm not seeing sh like, I'm also, I wasn't the best deer hunter at the time. And I'm sure, you know, there's an argument made. I probably should have went somewhere else, but that's not a terribly unique blacktail hunting experience. Like they are so nocturnal and they move so little. And I could have been walking right by deer. Like who knows? Because yeah, yeah, they're really very much right. like, that's one of the differences that all call out where like the mule deer will, will bounce. The blacktail is just going to sit still until like you're a proven threat. And I think most people walk past more blacktail than they actually see. But that's another thing about BC, man. Like people in the States, like it blows my mind. Like the amount of action and, and target rich environments they have. When you hunt BC, like you almost have to give into the fact that like you're not gonna see a whole lot and you need to be able to stay motivated between sightings or just go home because this is yeah, yeah, not something sure, where you're gonna get into action every single day. Like, it's just not. Yeah, and that's why you can't, it's, it's, that's why it's pretty hard to jump into the same, I'm going to kill a huge mule deer, right? Cause it's just like, you got to enjoy just seeing a big track. Right. And that's got to get you pumped, right? And if that's your day, that's your day. A big rub, a big track, um, or a trail cam pick. And you're just like, you know, one pick of one deer in one area, one time. It's like, if that's all you get, like your odds aren't that great of bumping that deer, but you got to be excited enough and, and have enough kind of hardness to you that, you know, you, you just get pumped to see a big track. Yeah. There's yep. a big deer in the area. That's all I need to know. I'm just going to hunt this hard now and know that there's a mature deer at the end of this track, or I've sat, seen a good picture on a trail camp. I can just work this area relentlessly, just saying my time will come and I'm going to bump this deer. Right. So definitely like a lot of that happening in there in the early years when the snow was thicker. And now it's like, you know, banger year this year, we whack a buck nice and early and it's, it's a really nice buck. And then jump the next like the biggest buck on the ridge, jump it, able to pass on this. And then see this like stud little 140 inch, you know, two-year-old deer that's just like on the up, right? It's like, you're, you're connecting all the dots. Like this is sweet, right? But, you know, snow conditions were good and it was a really strong, you know, year for the rut, I guess. Everything was active and moving around and, and doing what it should be doing, right? So just kind of, you know, that's that's the long-term game of doing three or four years, five years, six years in an area where, eventually have that year where everything's working for you, right? Working with you rather than against you. Yep. I think that's a huge takeaway for BC hunting in general. Yeah. Um, doe body language indicating bucks are nearby. Uh, um, it depends. Some does stay pretty calm, but generally I'm just doe or deer. I would just, it's, it's, it's just the body language of them being, you know, looking around, flicking an ear back. Like if a deer flicks its ear back once when it's, when it's looking at me, I'm just like, I'm just locking in saying there's another deer here. Yeah. And so I'm going to work it really hard now until that deer shows itself or, or I get an opportunity to get around this deer and calm it down enough to go and try and find it. 
a year looking backwards or it doing a quick check on its oneself. And, and they might look for escape routes sometimes for sure, but generally any deer that's kind of, you know, either listening for something that's off in a different direction or looking in a different direction, I'm expecting other deer. Um, a doe, lots of time when there's a rut and buck, the doe is actually almost a little more skittish. Okay. Right. So the doe's skittish and it doesn't seem like it's, you're making it skittish. It's kind of like, you know, this could be a deer that's, that's got a buck that's been hounding her. Yep. And she's just kind of like a little bit worried about where he's at right now. He's going to jump on her or what. Right. So skittish does sometimes are a sign as a buck around pushing her right and keeping her on her toes. Um, I sure. And then, yeah, go ahead. Something, something interesting just like that I really noticed this year. Um, I don't know if before, like it's actually surprising when you have the right deer on the, on the rut, you hear deer bounding away and jumping and you're thinking I blew him out. Like I had three or four experiences this year where there's deer jumping around and making a pile of noise. And it had nothing to do with me. Yeah. I just walked in on a buck running a doe, two bucks, you know, yep. kind of skirting each other, trying to make make their run at this doe. And you just kind of get in the mix, right? So it's almost one of those things you hear a bunch of noise, like don't automatically imagine a bunch of a full deer running away and you got to close the gap quickly and try to make, make a quick call or a shot. Like that might just be deer moving the way they move. And you just happen to come upon them when they're, when they're super active doing their thing and, and, in almost all the scenarios, I just was grunting, making more noise and, and walked in and there's one of the bucks and I go check the cam, you know, hundred meters away. And I see the other buck that was with them, you know, 10 minutes earlier crossing that camera. Right. And it's just like, yeah, I just walked into a herd of deer doing their thing. And they're really loud when they're active and running. Right. I really picked that up. Um, uh, watching the white tails, uh, cause they had no idea I was there. And like, sometimes I'm watching these guys for like 30, 45 minutes. And like, sometimes they'll come sprinting in and then screeching to a halt. And then they chill out and then they'll run halfway up the hill and bound over there together and then like walk back down. Like they're just doing like random erratic shit that like has nothing to do with me. And I was like, oh, this makes, that actually explains a lot of, of stuff. And it's like, that's interesting. Don't always assume that like you cause. You're just blowing something out. Like it could be just active and it could be on a loop and on a track and making this, this round and like, you know, don't freak out. Don't. Don't go running over like wild banshee trying to get a shot off thinking that it's all over. Yeah. It's like, just move in. Like if you're going to get a chance, you're going to get a chance and just, just, you know, try to make some, some deer like noises and, and not blow them out of there, but it might just be just what you're looking for. Right. hundred percent. Okay. We talked about that one. Talked about that one. phone is acting up i cracked my screen a while back and now every now and then it just stops working there we go okay you talked about the best call any other are you, you ever use those cans i use those for black tails with some success like the little i guess they're like yeah, a, ryan's like a ryan's dough. gotten a couple nice nice encounters with it and sometimes you're you don't know like you're moving a can or you're making a grunt and then there's just a deer there. And it's like, yeah. did, did it walk up on it? Did yeah. it walk up on me that was on its path or was it the can or the grunt? So you kind of, it's hard to like really measure success of something, but I, I walked around with one of those, you know, periodically and, and proven, unproven. I can't say it doesn't work. Can't say it works really great. Um, I think any noise that you can make, that's definitely deer like helps, but the more remote it is, the less pressure it is, the more it helps. And like backcountry deer are like really fun to hunt the rut because you just 
they, they expect you to be a deer over some hunting. Yeah, right? yeah, for and sure. The, the opposite occurs when you're hunting like a highly driven area that's yep. not, you know, roads cut through it and cuts cut through it. It's like that super ruddy day is like down to hours of stupidity versus days of stupidity. And it's like, right. you're hunting in like remote areas and backcountry. It's like you have full weeks of stupidity where they're like, you know, they're expecting you to be a deer half the time and they're letting you walk right in on them and, and make calls to calm them down and confirm that they think you're a deer and it's super helpful. But I've had the opposite occur in like highly hunted areas in the past where I'm just like, you make noise and the deer are gone. So yeah. you hear some, some rustling and some noise and you make a call and they're going the other way. And it's just kind of like, these deer are just very, very pressured. And like, you got to catch them on the one day when they're, you know, thinking about nothing but, but running. Right. And and then you can catch them with it. But um, yeah, it's definitely hit and miss in those types of areas using calls. Right. Yeah. hundred percent. Okay. This next question is really interesting. And I think I'm actually maybe going to have a couple dudes on I mean, We'll do a whole episode about this at some point, but his, his actual question is, what are some tips for balancing mule deer season with home life? But I want to take this one step further and maybe you can even like share what you do for a living. But like you're a guy who gets out quite a bit in the fall season. Um, I'm assuming you got a wife or a girlfriend. Um, yeah, yeah, I got a girlfriend and a dog, yeah. How do you, how do you, you know, this is a priority for you. How do you approach life so that you can get you know, the time that, that you need to get during hunting season. Cause it's a big struggle for most, for a lot of, yeah. for a lot of dudes. Um, I just, I just write off October and I just say, I'm just not going to get the pre scouting I want done and, and do the trail cam thing and get hunting earlier as I'd like to. But yeah, I don't know. I'm just trying to balance the time. Like I've just clear with my priorities and clear with what I need to do. And, and honestly, I've, I've got massive rentals in my house. If anyone that's close to me knows. And that's, I think the dude who asked this question knows because is. that's why he's like, how do you balance mule deer hunting with yeah, home life being, and rentals? He's probably being cheeky because yeah. I got a two year rental on the go here and I've <laughs> like got half of the house done. I'm living in it and life's good, but the other half is still on the go. We got a pool going in in the spring and decks being built. So he's probably poking fun at me, um, which is fine, which is fine. But I don't know. I'm just one of those things I, you know, I, I could just knuckle down and just get her done and, lose every minute of my life to it. But to me, it's just like, you only have so many seasons and you, you gotta put the boots on the ground for those peak days of the season. Like, so what about work to, vacation? Do you, do you take like all your vacation during the two months or how do you balance that without the rest of the year as well? Yeah. Luckily enough, I've, I work for a really great company. Um, I have a lot of responsibility. It's manufacturing and industry. We build modular, um, like hotels and social housing and stuff like that. Okay. So, um, I've been there for like 11 years now. Um, so I do get four weeks vacation, which is super helpful. It's, yep. it's still not enough. It never is enough, right. For a hunter, but no, um, I kind of give a week for fishing in the summer of the ocean, um, two weeks for elk in September. Um, and then I've got about a week left that I kind of spread through, you know, vacations with the girlfriend and family and, um, long weekends and stuff like that extending. And then hopefully try to have a day or two for November. But typically my Novembers are like, I'm leaving work. I'm driving in the dark. I'm hiking in the dark. I'm, I'm doing everything I can in the dark to get into the spot Friday night so that I've got a full Saturday hunt and then a good half day Sunday. And then I'm trying to get out of there before it's too, too late so I can get, get home safely and then and then back to work Monday. And then obviously it's the Remembrance Day, which is always a hunting day for me, right? Got to take advantage of that one. So, yeah, I mean, I, I would love to have more time. I used to. Like when I did a lot of work on this area, I was working three days a week. 12 hour shifts and then had four days off. Um, Ooh, that that's like tasty. 
super big game changer. And that was like a pivotal moment because that's when I was just like not making plans with friends because I had the different days off than them. And I was yeah. just like, it was just like full solo. It was like, if I want to see something, I want to check an area out. I'm not going to talk to my buddies about, we should go up there. We should go up there. I was just going to go do it. Yeah. It's yeah, like, yeah. I got Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday off, Monday off. I was just like, just go do it. Right. There's no point in trying to get somebody to book a day off to come with you. It wasn't going to happen. So suddenly it was just like, I was just spending my time. Any free time I had, I could go and check areas out, shed hunt, you know, dedicate a whole day to just looking for a way in. Yeah. Right. And it's like, you can't do that on two day weekends. No. And I'm back to two day weekends now. Right. But it's like, had I not done that groundwork, I couldn't be where I'm at now with that spot. Right. It was just like, it was all that work getting into it to get it set up and get it developed and learn the area. And now it's just like, now I know exactly what I need to do. And it's like, get off work early on Friday, you know, boogie in there as quick as I can get in there eight or nine o'clock at night. And then the next morning I'm in place hunting deer, you know, 10 steps out of camp kind of thing. Um, All right. So yeah, that's kind of it. I gotta you gotta prioritize the peak stuff, right? And then yeah, and then give up the stuff that isn't ideal and just say, you know, choose the stuff that makes the most sense and give up the stuff that doesn't, right? And, and make the sacrifices there and make it all balance. Well, and I think we're we're hearing the same thing again and again and again. It's a long-term perspective. Like you are not gonna take a week off and go to a new area the first time and kill a giant buck. Maybe you will. People get struck by lightning and win the lottery too. It's not a good strategy in life for success. I think it's that. I just like, like the idea of repeatable, right? Is it repeatable? Yeah. It's like, well, well, I could just go to that spot again, hike in, but it's like, if it's to me, it's really not repeatable on a one week trip and and definitely not a weekend trip. Like like backpack weekend trips, like holy shit. Weather wise, that yeah. that might not be more than in a half hour hunting. Yeah. Right? yeah, I've done scouting trips where where it's a four day scouting trip, backpacking in and out, and and I have three hours of sunlight spot six does and they're like well i guess that was the whole the whole trip was just yeah. that <laughs> one hour of sunlight the rest was fog snow rain zero viz and and that was yep. it right so um it is one of those things it's uh, that's why i don't do as much early season with mule deer as much as i love to do some of that backpack um hunting for muleys it's like it's not as predictable the weather really screw you over quite a bit um and, and you need to plan for more than just a couple of days i find it's like couple of days is just like a shot in the dark. You might get lucky. You might have a good spot and things might go your way, but it's like, shit, man. Like you might just spend that whole time trying to locate a deer and then you need another week to kill him or, or, you know, cross his paths or interrupt him or ambush him or something like that. Right. So yeah, I don't spend a lot of time doing that because it's, you know, that's I might as well hunt mule or elk there and then save the muley for, for November. Cause it's, it's the banger time for me for sure. Makes sense. Okay. Last yeah. one. Cause it's getting late here and we all got to work in the morning. Um, this says morning and evening mule deer tips, but anything that you can think that's, you know, how important are those two times a day? Because to me, that's the other argument for getting in there and staying. Because it's like, I used to do very, a lot of, of uh, when I lived in Fort Langley and I kind of hunted the mountains out behind Chilliwack, I would do a ton of day hunts. I was like, I was leaving at my place like three o'clock in the morning to get in there so I could hike in the dark to get to the spot so that as the sun was rising, I was in like, what I was hoping was a more high yeah, activity spot, area, yeah. but yeah. That, that's another yeah. thing, you know, especially with deer. So maybe, maybe talk about that a little bit. How important are those, those morning and evening hours? Yeah. And so I, there's super big differences to me because I used to hunt a lot of clear cuts and a lot of pounding roads yep. and, you know, I'll still do days like that in the season with buddies and, and you know, love it, but I just can't do that for a full season. Like I gotta be on my feet, but that type of hunting, man, that like the, the morning and evening is so critical. And I always found morning to me was the more you knew the area, the better be in the spot. You can literally pull in the dark in a vehicle yeah. and let the sun come up around you. And you kind of think, Oh, there's nothing here. And then the, just comes to life. Yeah. You know, 
10 minutes of light in all of a sudden deer are just moseying around the feeding there's a buck chasing a doe and it's just like the whole thing comes alive and you're sitting and saying holy shit this is pretty cool right and then kind of evening i kind of found the opposite where the deer aren't moseying and doing the thing they're motoring it was like right. the deer in the evening are they're popping out of the woodwork they're making tracks looking for a hot doe on on the prowl and it was like a really good time to intercept a deer crossing a cut or a road or something like that right and i found in those types of areas you're really just working kind of like those transition zones where they're crossing to get somewhere else or a feeding zone because it's a clear cut and it's full of food um and so it was really good evening and night when you get into like on foot I'd still prefer that early morning. The earlier I can get to the spot that I want to be, the better. Yeah. Um, and I hunt right till dark on foot. Um, but you're you're moving through their bedding zones. You're moving through their feeding zones. You're moving through all their zones. So it's like shit can happen at any point. You just might be bumping them out of their bed rather than catching them actively feeding through an open zone, right? And, and you know, you can kill them either way. So it's it's to me, it's less important when you're hiking. Um, and that's kind of what we used to do back in the day. Me and my dad would be like, you know, morning you crush the roads and then you'd go hunt a strip of timber or go deep into like a little canyon pop out with a couple hours of light left and go work work some areas in the dark right it's a pretty effective way to kill deer and and, and you know cover all the bases but you know now i'm just basically on foot from the morning till dusk and, and i definitely kind of pick my poison the first few hours are definitely better than the rest and the kind of last few hours can be pretty productive as well uh, but it's not like midday comes and i'm giving up or right. you know, i'm not going to see deer anymore it's like i'm just going to bump them out of their bed or catch them in between feeds or something like that. Right. And, and weather plays into that, right. A storm hits and they're bedded down. They're not doing nothing. Right. And then storm breaks for a bit in the, in the middle of the day. And all of a sudden they're up, up feeding, doing their thing, getting in what they did in the morning or evening. Right. Yeah. That's awesome, man. That was, that was heavy duty. There's a mule deer, mule deer one oh one. Um, thanks for, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Anything you want to, you want to close out with or, or share before we wrap things up? Um, gosh, um, no, I mean, I talked to a lot of guys on Instagram, right? So a lot of guys reach out and it's pretty cool. I've been following along with a few, few guys that are asking for this, asking for that and showing me some cool pictures and it's kind of cool to see it come together and, and guys make it happen. Right. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty accessible there. If people are having questions and I'll just, you know, basically just put it out there that I've, I'm going to preach, you know, this whole conversation, preaching this, preaching that I, I literally there's, there's again, slayers out there that are 10 times more accomplished than me. And so, I have very strong opinions about what works for me, but like, it's totally subjective and it's totally just, you know, find a strategy that works and, and just make it yours and do it and repeat it. And, and you'll find how to make that strategy work because, you know, I've been called out for many things, right. And, and seasoned guys that I totally have so much respect for that are like, you know, I'm like talking about sneaking through the forest, being really slow and being really calm and like just barely, you know, nobody, nothing knows you there. And they're like, fuck, I, I kill all my deer banging around like a big buck on the move. Right. And I'm just like, good point. You know, like, like I should do that more often once in a while and just, and just make, make more noise. Right. And it's like, you know, whatever works for you is whatever you put the most effort into. Right. The plan that'll work is the one that you stick to it and just keep doing it because you'll, you'll totally hone in on that plan and make it function for yourself. Right. So, um, you know, take everything I said with a grain of salt because it's, it's worked for me, but it's certainly not going to work for everyone in every area and every situation. Right. But, um, yeah, I don't even know where it's going with that, but, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm big on the timber hunting, right? I think it's super cool. And a lot of those people that reach out is kind of like they're kind of wondering about the timber and how I hunt this, what I do that. And it's some some cool people. Like, I've got guys sent me a picture of like this is wicked, like stud box and velvet. And like, and you can tell from the topography, it's like 
that's not primarily habitat. Like that guy is finding some deer and like, you know, it's probably close to his place and a place that he loves. And he's like, he's walking in on a deer. And it's like, that's super rad. Cause it's like, you know, there's only like one deer per, per, you know, square kilometer there. Right. Like it's like, yeah. it's, it's moss. There's no feed. It's like big cedars or something. You're like, that's not mule deer country. Right. Like, like there's deer, mule deer country near that, but like they're just putting the time and effort to map out an area and, big deer will end up going to the same spots and finding a way to live there and make it, make it their, their hidey hole. Right. And like, it's really cool to see that. Right. So it's just kind of funny how, how, you know, the timber hunting is kind of like the last frontier in my mind, right? Like every mountain, every ridge, every alpine basin, somebody's been in there and, and hunts it. Somebody's looking for bucks there and and every sweet winter range that's got, you know, high quality habitat with a lot of mule there. There's a pile of people hunting it. It's like, the last place to go, man, is just that thick mass of stuff that no one else goes in. And, and, you know, if you put the time in, it's pretty fun. It's pretty cool. You won't see as many deer. You won't pass up as many deer, but every encounter is like a trigger pulling situation. Yeah, It's like, you just are just tromping the forest and it's like you bump a doe and it turns into a buck and it turns into a stud and he's 10 or 15 or 30 or 40 yards away. And it's like, everything happens in like a split second. And all of a sudden you're looking at, you know, a, a sweet stud buck on the ground or something. Right. So it's cool encounters where, yeah, you're not blasting a hundred year day and you're not seeing three or four bucks or, or multiple four points, some of that, but you know, you end up getting your encounters and they're pretty sweet. And I say all this, let everyone go to the, to the thick shit so I can start hunting the, the open stuff again. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's great. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's awesome, man. Well, I, I, I'll link to the, to the Instagram page and all that. Although 99% sure everybody who follows us follows both of us. So it's not a big <laughs> yeah. deal, but I always for appreciate sure. the conversations, man. I learn I learn a shitload and I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, no, it's fun, man. Glad, glad uh, we pulled it off and pulled it together. It's, it's uh, always, always a good time just chatting. All right, brother. Have a good night. We'll chat soon. Yeah. Later, man. Have a good one. All right, guys. There you go. It was almost two full hours jam-packed with golden mule deer tidbits. Uh, This is one of the ones that I'm going to have to go back and listen to myself and probably take some notes. I want to thank Jordan again. Dude is super helpful and just selfless when it comes to sharing information, and I always appreciate that about him. So again, if everybody could take a moment and engage with the podcast, like, share, comment, subscribe, it's greatly appreciated. And until next time, thanks for tuning in.